Chapter 35 I gave the blood on my torn knuckle a disdainful glance, then snapped. Get your things and hold on to Mouse. We're going. Going? Butters asked. It isn't safe for you here now, I said. They know about this place. I can't leave you behind. Butters swallowed. Where are we going? They tailed me all day. I've got to make sure the people I've seen today are all right. I paused, thoughts tearing through my head. And I've got to find the book. The necromancer's book? Butters asked. Why? I got out my keys and headed for the beetle. Because I have no freaking clue what's supposed to be happening at this dark hallow. The only part that I understood enough to stop was the summoning of the Earl King, and that's been blown to hell. I keep getting burned because I don't know enough about what's going on. I've got to figure out how to throw a wrench into Cal's gears during the Dark Hallow. Why? Because the only other thing I can do is try to kick my way through a crowd of necromancers and undead and try to punch his ticket face to face. Wouldn't that work? If I could pull it off, I said, and went out into the rain. But I'm a featherweight fighting in the heavyweight division. Nose to nose, I think Cal could probably kick my eldritch ass. My only real chance is to fight smart. And that means I've got to know more about what's going on. For that, I need the book. Butters hurried after me, a couple of fingers through Mouse's collar. We got into the beetle and I revved it up. But we still haven't figured out those numbers, he said. That has to change, I said. Now. Um, said Butters as I got the beetle moving. You can say now all you want, but I still don't know. Could it be a combination, I said, like to a safe? The older safe combinations need some kind of designation for left and right. The newer ones might use some kind of digital code, sure, but unless you find a safe with a password sixteen numerals long, that won't help us much. <sighs> a credit card, I said. That's sixteen digits, right? Can be, Butter said. You think that's what the number was? Maybe a credit card or debit card account that Boney Tony wanted his fee to get paid to? I grimaced. Doesn't make any sense, I said. Something like that would be in his pocket, not hidden in a balloon hanging from a string down his throat. Good point, Butter said. We rode in silence for a while. Except for the headlights of other cars, the streets were dark. Between the total lack of lighting, the dark, and the heavy rain... It was like driving through a cave. Traffic was tight and snarled anywhere near the highways, but it had thinned out considerably since the afternoon. The people of Chicago seemed to mostly be staying home for the night, which was a mercy in more ways than one. Butters looked around nervously a few minutes later. Harry, this isn't exactly the best neighborhood. I know, I said, and pulled over in front of a hydrant, the only open space in sight. He swallowed. Why are you stopping in the car? I need to check on someone, I said. Stay here with Mouse. I'll be right back. But... Butters, I said impatiently. There's a girl here who helped me out earlier today. I have to make sure Cowl and his sidekick haven't harmed her. But can't you do this after you stop the bad guys? I shook my head. I'm doing my best here. I don't know what might happen in the next few hours, but damn it, this girl helped me because I asked her to. I dragged her into this. Cowl and Kumori were going to considerable lengths to destroy every copy of De Earl King that they could find. And if they guess that I got it from her memory, she'll be in danger. I need to make sure she's all right. Oh, 
Butters said. This is the girl who asked you out, right? I blinked. How did you know that? Thomas told me. I growled under my breath and said, Remind me to punch his lights out sometime soon. Hey, Butters said. At least he didn't let me keep thinking you were gay. I gave Butters a flat look and got out of the car. Stay in the driver's seat, I told him. If there's trouble, run. Try to circle back for me. Right, Butters said. Got it. I hurried through the rain and the darkness into Sheila's building. I drew out my pentacle and willed light from it and went up the stairs to her floor as I had that morning. The stairs in the hallway had that illusory unfamiliarity that darkness can give a place you'd seen only once or twice, but I found my way to Sheila's door easily enough. I paused for a moment and tried to sense the wards she'd woven and found that they were still in place. That was good. If anyone had come in after her for some reason, they'd have either torn the ward down or set it off on the way through. Unless, of course, someone had gone to the trouble to get invited in first. Sheila didn't seem to be the kind to turn folks away out of a sense of general paranoia. I knocked several times. There wasn't an answer. She had said she was going out earlier. She was probably at some costume party somewhere, talking with friends, eating good food, having fun. Probably. I knocked again and said, Sheila? It's Harry. I heard a couple of soft steps, the creak of a floorboard, and then the door opened to the length of its security chain. Sheila stood in the opening. There was soft candlelight coming from her apartment. Harry, she said quietly, her mouth curling into a smile. What are you doing here? Hang on. She closed the door. The security chain rattled, and then she opened it again. Come in. I really can't stick around, I said but I stepped through the door anyway. She had half a dozen candles lit on the end table beside her couch, and there was a must blanket on the couch next to a paperback novel. Sheila's long, dark hair was piled up into a bun and held in place with a couple of chopsticks, leaving her ears and the smooth skin of her neck intriguingly bare. She was wearing a bear's football jersey made of soft cotton that hung to her knees, and she wore pink slippers on her feet. The jersey was loose on her, but she had the curves to make it look more appealing than it had any right to be. I could see her calves, and they did a wonderful job of blending softness and strength. Sheila saw me looking, and her cheeks turned a little pink. Hi, she said, her voice quiet. Hi, I said back and smiled at her. Hey, I thought you had a party tonight. She shook her head. I was walking... I didn't want to walk in the rain, and I couldn't call anyone to get me a ride. So, I'm home. She tilted her head to one side and frowned at me. You seem... I'm not sure. Tense. Angry. Both, I said. There are some things happening. She nodded, her dark eyes serious. I've heard that there's something bad brewing. It's what you're working on, isn't it? Yes. She fretted at her lower lip. Then why are you here? She looked beautiful like that, in a sleep shirt in the candlelight. She wasn't wearing any makeup, but she looked deliciously soft and feminine. I thought about kissing her again, just to make sure that the first one hadn't been some sort of anomaly. Then I shook my head and reminded myself that tonight was about business. I just needed to make sure that you were all right.
Her eyes widened. Am I in some kind of danger? I lifted my hand placatingly. I don't think you are now, but I was followed today. I had to be sure that you were safe. Have you seen anyone? Maybe you felt nervous or anxious for no reason? No more than any other day, she said. Thunder rumbled, and the rain kept drumming on her windows. Honestly, I let out my breath and felt myself relax a little. <sighs> okay, good, I'm glad. Thunder rumbled again, and we both just stood there, staring at each other. Both of us glanced, just for a second, at the other's eyes, then pulled away before anything could happen. Harry, she said quietly, is there anything I can do to help you? You already have, I said. She took a step closer, and her dark eyes looked huge. Are you sure? My heart sped up again, but I took a little step back from her. Yeah, Sheila, I knew I wouldn't be able to focus on the rest of tonight if I didn't look in on you first. She nodded then and folded her arms. All right, but when you're finished with this, there's something I'd like to talk to you about. What? I asked. She shook her head and put her hand on my arm. It would take some time to explain it. If you think you need your focus for tonight, I don't want to distract you with anything. I looked at her and then deliberately down her and said, That's probably best. I'm finding you very distracting right now. She flushed brighter. No, that's just you reacting to being in danger. You're afraid that you're going to die, and sex is very life-affirming. Is that what it is? I drawled. Among other things, she said. For a few seconds, my hormones did their best to lobby for overcoming distraction by means of indulgence, but I reined them in. Sheila was right. I was in pain and in fear and in danger, and those kinds of circumstances have a tendency to make you pay attention to different things. The soft shine of candlelight on Sheila's hair, for example, or the soft scent of rose oil and flowered soap on her skin, and Sheila had been in danger for part of that time as well. I didn't want to take advantage of that, and I didn't want to start anything with her that I wasn't going to be able to finish. For all I knew, I'd be dead before another day was out, and it wouldn't be right to allow things to go any further just because I was afraid. On the other hand, though, there was nothing wrong with savoring life while you still had it. I leaned down to her, lifted her chin gently with my right hand, and kissed her mouth again. She quivered and returned it with a slow, hesitant shyness. I stayed like that for a moment, tasting her lips, my fingertips light on her chin, and then straightened, breaking it off very slowly. She opened her eyes a moment later, her breathing a little fast. I touched her cheek with my fingertips and smiled at her. I'll call you soon. She nodded, her eyes clouding with concern. Be careful. Harry? Called a voice. I blinked and looked around. Harry? He called again, and I recognized Butters' voice. There was a curious quality to the acoustics of his voice, as if he were standing in an empty room with no furniture or carpeting to absorb any sound. Sheila froze, looking toward her door, and then said, Damn it. I blinked at her. What? 
I didn't want this to distract you, she said, and her tone was enigmatic. I frowned at her for a moment and then opened the door to the apartment. Butters stood in the hall. He'd improvised a lead for Mouse out of what looked like the torn hem of his scrubs tunic, and my big shaggy dog headed for me, nose to the ground, pulling Butters along the way. Butters, for his part, stumbled along uncertainly, as if he'd had a little too much to drink and couldn't get his balance. Butters, I said, what's up? The car died, he said, and there were some guys who looked like they didn't like me on the street, so I came to find you. Butters stopped, or tried to. Mouse chuffed out a breath in greeting and headed straight for me. I leaned down to scratch at Mouse's ears. Hey, Mouse. Sheila, this is my dog, Mouse. And this is Waldo Butters. He's a friend of mine. Sheila blinked her eyes closed slowly and looked away. Butters peered and squinted, looking around him. What? I frowned at him and touched his arm. Are you okay? He flinched a little when I touched him, then clapped a hand down on my arm as if using it to orient me. Harry, he asked, don't you have a light? I lifted my eyebrows at him and lifted my pentacle, willing it to light. Here, I said. Sheila, I hope you don't mind if they come in. Butters peered up at me and then around him. Harry, he asked. Yeah? Um, who are you talking to? I stared at him for a silent second, and then a few details floated together in my mind, and the bottom dropped all the way out of my stomach. I closed my eyes for a moment and opened my inner vision, my wizard's sight, and turned to face Sheila. The little apartment simply dissolved, sliding away like paint being washed away by a stream of falling water. In its place, I could see a dimly lit, gutted building. Studs stood naked where the drywall had been removed. There were piles of scrap wiring, half-rotted-looking ducts, and similar refuse, which had been removed from the building and thrown aside into refuse piles. The place had been prepared for renovation, but it was empty. The only window I could see was broken. Thunder rumbled, the sound slightly different than it had been a moment before. The driving rain gained a couple of notches of volume, beating hollowly on the old apartment building. I stared at Sheila with my sight, and she stood there unchanged, except that I could see a faint tint of light around her, subtle but definite. It meant that she was either a non-corporeal presence or an illusion of thought and energy rather than a reality. But if she'd been an illusion, she should have faded away entirely, as the apartment had done. I released my sight again. My stomach twisted on itself, a burning, bitter feeling. Sheila, I said quietly. Stars and stones. It's all but your real name, isn't it? Lashiel. It's close, Sheila agreed quietly. Harry, Butters whispered. His eyes were very wide. Who... Are you talking to? Shut up a minute, Butters, I said, staring at her. She regarded me quietly, her eyes now steady on mine. That's what Billy was talking about. Box started looking awfully odd when I was speaking to you at the bookstore. And you never interacted with anyone else. 
Never opened any doors in the store. Didn't pick up the book when I was looking for it. I glanced down at my hand, where she'd written her number in permanent ink. It was now gone. Illusions, I said. Yes, she said calmly. Some of appearance only, some of seeming. Why? To help you, she said. I told you that I could not make open contact with your conscious mind. That is why I created Sheila. She gestured down at herself. I wanted to help you, but I couldn't do it directly. So I tried to do it this way. So you lied to me, I said. She arched a brow. I had little choice in the matter. What about after you made contact with me, I said, and my voice was bitter, too. I used the hellfire, and you came to me in a dream. That was after you met Sheila, if you will recall, she said. But you didn't need Sheila anymore. No, she said. I didn't. But I found that I... She rolled her shoulders in a shrug. That I enjoyed being Sheila. That I enjoyed interacting with you as one person to another, without being regarded with fear and suspicion. I know that you understand what it is like. You've felt it often enough in your own life. But oddly enough, I said, I haven't gone off and pretended to be someone else to gain another's trust. You've felt that isolation for less than two score years, my host. I've lived with it for millennia. Yeah? How long were you planning on stringing me along? Her soft mouth turned into a firm line. I was going to tell you once the night's business was done, assuming you lived through it. Sure you were, I said. I told you, she said. I didn't want it to become a distraction for you. I barked out a harsh little laugh. <laughs> and why should I believe that? Because your death would mean the death of this part of me, she said, gesturing down at herself again. The thought shadow of Lashiel would not survive your death and the true Lashiel, my true self, would remain trapped for who knows how long. You have no idea of what it's like to be trapped without sound, sight, or senses, waiting for someone to bring you forth from oblivion. I stared hard at her. I don't believe you. You need not, my host, she said, and gave me a little bow. But that makes it no less true. You... Kissed me, I said. Sheila Lashiel's eyebrows lifted, and she gave me an almost whimsical smile. When I said that it had been a long time since I was close to anyone, I meant it. I enjoyed that contact, my host, as, I think, did you. Oh, let me guess, I said. You did that for me, too, because you wanted to help me. I kissed you because I desired it, and because it was pleasurable. If you will recall, my host, I did help you. I gave you the summons to call the Earl King, did I not? I opened my mouth and then closed it again, struggling to find something to say. I have never wished you ill, my host, she said. In fact, I have done all that I can to assist you. I suddenly felt very tired and rubbed at my forehead. I reminded myself that Lashiel was a fallen angel, that she was one of the thirty demons of the Order of the Blackened Denarius, that she was known as the Temptress and the Web Weaver, 
and that she was ancient, powerful, and deadly dangerous at the art of manipulation. She could not be trusted, nor could her little carbon copy that had taken up residence in my head. But she had helped me, and she had kissed me. Sure, a kiss was just a kiss, but her desire for it, her hesitation, the sense of yearning to her, had been genuine. She had wanted to do it. She had enjoyed it. She was one hell of a good kisser. Hell being the operative word, I reminded myself. I can still help you, my host, she said. You are a powerful mortal, but your foes are more formidable still. They will kill you. Her face took on an expression of frustrated protest. Let me help you survive. Give me the chance to preserve myself, please. I stared at her for a moment. She looked lovely and sincere and afraid. She looked exactly like the kind of woman in trouble whom I could never turn away. I have no intention of dying, I said quietly. But you aren't going to be part of the equation. If you don't, save it, I told her quietly. I know how this works. First I allow you to help with this problem, then with the next one, then with the one after that. And at some point I'll need more power for what will probably look like a very good reason, and dig up the coin. And then you'll be able to do pretty much anything you want with me. I shook my head. That's one big, long, slippery slope. No. She clenched her jaw, her expression frustrated. But I do not wish you any harm. Maybe, I said, but there's no way for me to know that. She arched one dark eyebrow at me. Then, as quickly as blinking, the building was on fire. It rose up in a sudden explosion of heat and flame that engulfed the bare studs on the walls and chewed at the floor. Vicious heat assaulted my back, a searing pain that left me with no choice but to move forward. Behind me, the fire roared up higher, and I looked around frantically, suddenly panicked. The only portion of the building that wasn't being swallowed by rising, hungry flame led to the broken window. I sprinted to it, spotted the old iron of a fire escape lattice beneath it, and ducked down to go through onto the fire escape before I was burned to charcoal. And then the flames vanished. The air became cool once more, and the beat of rain replaced the roar of flame. I stood at the window, one leg raised onto the sill, the rain soaking my chest and my jeans. And there was no fire escape outside the window. There was only a long, long drop to the sidewalk beneath. I swallowed and drew back from the window, shaking. The whole thing had happened so fast. My reaction to the fire had been sheer and naked terror, and even now my hand throbbed with the pain of illusory burns. Ever since that fire, I'd had nightmares of more. The illusion of fire had cut straight through to my pain and terror, and utterly bypassed my brain, which was exactly what Lashiel meant it to do. Harry? Butters called, his voice high and thready. I couldn't see him. He stood back in the darkness of the empty building, and in my mindless panic, I had allowed the light of my mother's pentacle to go out. 
I'm okay, I told him. Just stay where you are. I'm coming. I lit the pentacle again and found Lashiel standing next to me, one eyebrow still raised. That is how you know, she said. If I wish to kill you, my host, your blood would be seeping from your broken corpse and mixing with the rain on the sidewalk. There wasn't much I could say to that. Let me help you, she urged me. I can help you defend yourself against the disciples of Kemmler. I can teach you magics you have never considered. I can show you how to make yourself stronger, swifter. I can show you how you might heal the damage to your hand if you have enough discipline. There wouldn't even be a scar. I turned my back on her. My heart pounded against my chest as I walked back to Butters. She was lying to me. She had to be. That's what the Denarians did. They lied and manipulated their way into a mortal's good graces, gradually giving them more power while they fell more deeply under their demonic influence. But she was telling the truth about one thing, for sure. She could make me stronger. Even the weakest Denarian I had seen, Quintus Snakeboy Cassius, had been a certifiable nightmare. With Hellfire to supplement my magic and an enormously powerful being to serve as a tutor and consultant, my abilities could grow to epic proportions. If I had power like that, I could protect my friends. Murphy, Billy, and the others. I could turn my power against the Red Court and help save the lives of the wardens and the council. I could do a lot of things. And her kiss... The illusion had all been in my head, but it had been so utterly real. Every detail. Sheila herself had been so thoroughly genuine that I would never have guessed she was an illusion. Indeed, there was little difference from my own perspective between that complex an illusion and reality. The feel of her, the scent, everything had been there. And she had been just as convincingly real in her blonde goddess form beside the hot tub in my dream. Her appearance had to be malleable. She could appear to me as anything. As anyone. Some darker, baser part of my nature toyed with that notion for a moment. But only for a moment. I didn't dare let that thought flow through my head for long. Her touch had been too soft, too gentle too warm, too good. I'd been without female company for years, and more of that warmth, that pleasing contact, was a temptation too great to allow myself to dwell upon. I turned slowly and faced Lashio. She lifted her eyebrows, leaning a little forward in anticipation of my answer. I knew how to manipulate and control my dreams— and this manifestation of Lashiel's shadow was nothing more than a waking dream. This is my mind, I told her quietly. Get thee behind me. I focused my thoughts and my power and brought forth my own illusion of imagination and thought. Silver manacles appeared from nowhere, manifested from my focus and desire, and locked themselves around Lashiel's wrists and ankles. I gestured sharply and visualized her being lifted through the air. Then I opened my hand, my spread fingers out, palm to the floor, and she fell into an iron cage that appeared from my concentrated effort. The door slammed and locked behind her.
fool, she said in a quiet voice. We will die. I closed my eyes and with a last effort of imagination and will, summoned a heavy tarp that fell over the cage, covering it and blocking Lashiel from sight and sound. Maybe we will, I muttered to myself, but I'll do it on my own. I turned around to find Butters staring at me, his expression almost sick with fear. Mouse sat beside him, also staring at me, somehow managing to look worried. Harry? he asked. I'm okay, I told him quietly. Um, what happened? A demon, I told him. It got into my head a while back. It was causing me to experience hallucinations, I guess you call them. I thought I was talking to people, but it was the demon pretending to be them. He nodded slowly. And... and it's gone now? You did, like, some kind of auto-exorcism? Not gone, I said quietly. But it's under control. Once I knew what it was doing, I was able to lock it away. He peered at me. Are you crying? I turned my face away, trying to make it look like I was staring at the window while I wiped a hand over my eyes. No. Harry, are you sure you're all right? Not, you know, insane? I looked back up at Butters and suddenly laughed. Look who's talking, polka boy. He blinked for a moment and then smiled a little. I just have better taste than most. I walked to him and rested my hand on his shoulder. I'm all right, or at least no crazier than I usually am. He looked at me for a moment and then nodded. Okay. Good thing you came along when you did, I said. You tipped the demon's hand when you came up here. There was no way it could fit you into the illusion. I helped, he said. Big time, I said. I think I'm just too used to knowing more than most people about magic. The demon was using some of my expectations against me. It knew exactly how to hide things from a wizard. An idle thought flicked through my brain at the words, and suddenly I froze with my mouth open. Hell's bells, I swore. That's it. It is, Butters asked. Uh, what is? Mouse tilted his head to one side, ears perked inquisitively. How to hide things from a wizard, I said, and I felt my mouth stretching into a wide, half-crazy grin. I dug in my memory until I found the string of mystery numbers and recited them. Ha! I said, and threw my hands up in the air in triumph. Ha! Ha ha! Eureka! Butters looked distressed. Let's go, I told him, rising excitement making tingles of nervous energy shoot through my limbs. I started walking to give some of it an outlet. Come on, let's hurry. Why? Butters asked, bewildered. Because I know what those numbers mean, I said. I know how to find the word of Kemmler, and to do it, I need your help. Chapter 36 The lights of Chicago were still out, and the night was growing even darker. A storm had driven most people from the streets, and now headlights appeared only intermittently. The National Guard had set up around Cook County Hospital, 
bringing in generators and laboring to keep them running, while providing a shelter of some sort and a presence of authority on some of the streets. But they were as badly hampered by the lack of reliable telephone and radio communications as anyone else, and rain and darkness had cast them into the same morass of confusion as the rest of the city. The net result of it was that some streets were bright with the headlights of military trucks and patrolled by National Guardsmen, and some of them were as black and empty as a crooked politician's heart. One section of State Street was sunken in blackness, and I pulled the beetle up onto the sidewalk in front of a darkened radio shack. Stay, Mouse, I told the dog, and got out of the car. I walked to the glass door and considered it, and the bars on it. Then I leaned my staff against it, drew in my will, and muttered, Forzare. There was no flash of light with the release of energy. I'd kept the spell tidy enough to avoid that. Instead, it all went into kinetic force, snapping the plate glass as cleanly as if I'd used a cutter, and bending the center bars out into a neat bow shape, large enough to slip through. Holy crap, Butter said, his voice a hushed shout. You're breaking in? No one's minding the store, I said. I nudged a few pieces of door that hadn't fallen out of the frame, then carefully slid into the building. Come on. Now you're entering, Butters informed me. You're breaking and entering. We're going to jail. I stuck my head out between the bars and said, It's in a good cause, Butters. We're the secret champions of the city. Justice and truth are on our side. He looked at the front of the store uncertainly. They are? They are if you hurry up before someone in a uniform spots us, I said. Move it. I went back into the store, lifting up my amulet and willing it to light. I stared around me at all the technological things, only a very few of which I could readily identify. I turned in a circle, looking for one particular gadget. But I had no idea where in the store it would be. Butters came in and looked around. The blue light of my pentacle gleamed on his glasses. Then he nodded decisively at a section of counter and walked over to it. Is this it? I asked him. Something wrong with your eyes? He asked me. I grimaced at him. I don't get in here a lot, Butters, remember? Oh. Oh, yeah, right. The Murphyonic technology thing. Murphyonic? Sure, Butters said. You exude a Murphyonic field. Anything that can go wrong does. Don't let Murph hear you say that, <laughs> Butters said. Bring the light. I lifted it higher and stepped up behind him. Yeah, yeah, he said. They're right here, under the glass. He peered around behind the counter. There must be a key here somewhere. I lifted up my staff and drove it bodily down through the glass, shattering it. Butters looked a little wild around the eyes, but he said, Oh, right, I forgot. Burglary. One hand darted in and plucked up an orange box. Then he looked around and picked up a couple of packs of batteries from a rack on the wall. He hadn't touched a thing but what he had taken with him, and neither had I. Without security systems, the only way we would get caught would be by fingerprints or direct apprehension. And I was glad we didn't have to take the time to wipe anything for prints before commencing the getaway. I led Butters back to the car, and away we got. I can't see anything, Butters said. Can you make the light again? 
Not this close to the gadget, I told him. A minute or two wouldn't be a problem, but the longer I work forces near it, the more likely it is to give out. I need some light, he said. All right, hang on. I found a spot near an alley and parked with the Beatles headlights pointing at an overhanging awning of a restaurant. I left the car running and got out with butters. He opened the box and took out the batteries and did gadgety things with them while I kept an eye out for bad guys, or possibly the cops. Tell me why you think this is it again, Butters said. He had drawn a little plastic device the size of a small walkie-talkie from the box and fumbled with it until he found the battery cover. The numbers in Boney Tony's code are just longitude and latitude, I said. He hides the book, see? He records the coordinates with one of those global satellite thingies all the soldiers raved about during Desert Storm. Global positioning system, Butters corrected me. Whatever. The point is that you need a GPS to find those specific coordinates. They're accurate to what, ten or twelve yards? More like ten feet, Butters said. Wow. So, Boney Tony figures that most wizards wouldn't have a clue about what a GPS device is. And the ones who do can't use one because they're high-tech and running one even close to a wizard will short it out. It's his insurance, to make sure that Gravain can't screw him. But Gravain did, Butters said. Gravain did, I echoed, the idiot. He never considered that Boney Tony might have been able to outfox him. So he knows that Boney Tony has got the key to finding the word of Kemmler on him, but Gravain never even considers that it might be something he can't access. He just blunders along doing as he pleases, which he's used to. Whereas you, Butters said, read books at the library. And magazines, because they're free there, I said. Though I have to give most of the credit to George's SUV. I might not have thought of this if it hadn't had the same system. Note the past tense on that, Butters said. Had. He glanced up at me pointedly. I'm about to turn it on. Do you need to move off? I nodded at him and backed off all the way to the car and tried to think technologically friendly thoughts. Butters stood in the headlights for a minute, frowning down at the gadget and then peering up at the sky. What's wrong? I asked. Signal isn't coming through very well. Maybe it's the storm. Storm isn't helping, I said back. There's magic at work, too. I chewed on my lip for a second. Turn it off. Butters did, and then nodded at me. I hurried over to him and said, Now hold still. Then I drew a piece of chalk from my duster pocket and marked out a quick circle around him on the concrete. Butters frowned down at the chalk and said, Is this some kind of mime training? Do you want me to press my fingers against an invisible wall? No, I said. You're going to throw up a circle around you, an outwardly directed barrier. It should put a screen between you and any outside magical influence. I am, huh? he said. How do I do that? I completed the circle, reached for my penknife, and passed it to him. You need to put a drop of your blood on the circle and picture a wall going up in your head. Harry, I don't know magic. Anyone can do this, I said. Butters, there isn't any time. The circle should hold out cowls working and give you a chance to get a signal normally. An anti-Murphionic field, huh? You've watched too many Trek reruns, Butters, but basically, yeah. He pressed his lips together and then nodded at me. I backed away to the beetle again. Butters grimaced and then touched the penknife to the base of his left thumbnail, 
where the skin is thin and fragile. Then he leaned over self-consciously and squeezed his thumb until a drop of blood fell on the chalk circle. The circle barrier snapped up immediately, invisibly. Butters looked around for a second and then said, It didn't work. It worked, I told him. It's there. I can feel it. Try again. Butters nodded and went back to his gizmo. Five seconds later, his face brightened. Hey, what do you know? It worked. So this circle keeps out magic? And only magic, I said. Anything physical can cross it and disrupt the barrier. Handy for hedging out demons and such, though. I'll remember that, Butters said. He peered down at the gadget. Harry, he exclaimed. You were right. The numbers match up to coordinates right here in Chicago. Where? I demanded. Hang on. The little guy punched buttons and frowned. I have to get it to calculate distance and heading from here. It can do that? I asked. Oh, yeah, he said. Plus AM, FM radio, weather reports, fish and game reports, maps of major cities, locations of restaurants and hotels for travelers, all kinds of stuff. That, I said, is really cool. Yeah, you really get a lot for the 500 bucks on this model. The whole time his fingers flicked back and forth on the gadget. Right, he said. Uh, northwest of us and maybe a mile off. I frowned at him. Doesn't it tell you the address or something? Yeah, Butters said, pushing more buttons. Oh, wait. No, you have to buy the expansion card for that. He looked up thoughtfully. Maybe we could go back and get it? One little burglary and you've gone habitual, I said. No, it's a bad idea. If a patrol car spotted the broken window, there will be police there. I doubt anyone saw us, but there's no reason to take chances. Well, how do we find it, then? He asked. Turn it off. Then break the circle with your foot and get in the car. We'll head that way and stop in a bit, and you can check again. Rinse and repeat. Right. Good idea. He turned the gizmo off and smudged the chalk circle with his foot. Like that? Like that. Let's go. Butters got in the beetle, and we started through the dark, dank streets. After several long blocks, I stopped with my lights shining into the awning in front of an apartment building, and Butters got out to repeat the process. He took my chalk with him, dribbled a bit of his blood on the circle he drew, and tried the GPS gadget again. Then he hurried through the rain back into the car. More north, he said. I peered at the darkness as I got moving, going through my mental map of Chicago. Soldier Field? Maybe, he said. I can't see anything. We drove north and cruised past the home of the Bears. I stopped just on the other side and Butters checked again, facing the stadium. Then he blinked and turned around. His eyes widened and he came running back to the car. We're really close. I think it's the Field Museum. I got the car moving. Makes sense, I said. Boney Tony had plenty of contacts there. He did some trading in discretionary antiquities. You mean stolen artifacts? What did I just say? He probably has some kind of arrangement with security there. Maybe he stashed it in a staff locker or something. I parked in front of the Field Museum under a no-parking sign. There were a couple of actual spots I could have used, but the drive was even closer. Besides... I found it aesthetically satisfying to defy municipal code. I put the Beatles' parking brake on and got out into the rain.
Stay, Mouse, I said. Come on, Butters. Can that thing get us close to the book? Within ten feet or so, he said. But, Harry, the museum is closed. How are we going to... I blew out the glass of the front door with my staff, just as I had at Radio Shack. Oh, he said. Right. I strode into the main hall, Butters walking on my heels. Lightning flashed, abruptly illuminating Sue, the Tyrannosaurus, in all her bony Jurassic glory. Butters hadn't been expecting it and let out a strangled little cry. Thunder rolled and I got out my amulet for light, lifting an eyebrow at Butters. Sorry, he said. I, uh, I'm a little nervous. Don't worry about it, I told him, my own heart pounding wildly. The sudden reveal of that monstrous skeleton had shaken me, too. Don't look at me like that. It was a tense sort of evening. I looked slowly around the place and listened for a moment. I couldn't sense anyone's presence. I opened my sight again, just for a quick glance around, but I didn't see anyone hiding behind a veil of magic. I backed off. Check again. He did so though the shining floor of the museum didn't take the chalk as readily as concrete. A few minutes later, he nodded towards Sue and said, Over that way. He broke the circle and we hurried across the enormous floor. Try to keep quiet, I told him. Security might still be around. We stopped at Sue's feet and checked again. Butters frowned, peering around. This can't be right, he said. According to the GPS, these coordinates are inside that wall. Could Bony Tony have hidden it in the wall? It's stone, I said, and I think someone might have noticed if he'd torn out a wall in the entry hall and replaced it. He shook the GPS a little. I don't get it, then. I chewed on my lip and looked up at Sue. Elevation, I said. What? Come on, I pointed up. There's a gallery overlooking the main hall. It must be either up there or on the floor below us. How do we know which? We look, starting with the upstairs. The levels below us are like some kind of gerbil maze from hell. I started for the stairs, and Butters came after me. Going up them was a pain, but my instincts were screaming that I was right, and my excitement made the discomfort unremarkable. Once on the gallery, we went past a display of articles from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Saddles, wooden rifles that had been carried by the show's cowboys and Indians alike, cavalry bugles, feathered war bonnets, beaded vests, moccasins, ancient old boots, several worn old tom-toms, and about a million old photographs. Beyond that was some kind of interactive ecology display, and just past that, there was a table bearing the weight of an enormous, malformed-looking dinosaur skull. Butters checked again and nodded toward the skull. I think it's there. I went down to the skull. The display proclaimed that it was Sue's actual skull, but that geological shifts and pressures had warped it, so the museum had created an artificial skull for the display. Holding my light up, I walked slowly around the skull, an enormous block of rock now. I peered into darkened crevices in the rock, and when I didn't find a book, I got down on the floor and started checking under the heavy platform that supported the skull. I found a manila envelope duct-taped to the underside of the platform and snatched it. 
I got out from under the platform and tore the envelope open, my fingers shaking. An old, slender black volume, not much larger than a calendar notebook, fell from the envelope. I held it in my bare right hand for a moment. There was no tingle of arcane energies to the book, no sense of lurking evil or imminent danger. It was simply a book. But nonetheless, I was sure I had found the word of Kemmler. My fingers shook harder, and I opened it. The front bore a spidery scrawl of cursive writing. The word of Heinrich Kemmler. Hey, that was kind of fun, Butter said. Is that it? This is it, I said. We found it. I glanced up at Butters and said, Actually, you found it, Butters. I couldn't have done it without your help. Thank you. Butters beamed. Glad I could help. I thought I heard a noise. I lifted a hand, forestalling whatever Butters was about to say. The sound didn't repeat itself. There was only thunder and rain. I put a finger to my lips and Butters nodded. Then I closed my eyes and reached out with my senses, slow and careful. For the barest second, I felt my thoughts brush against a stirring of cold energy. Necromancy. I drew back from it with panicked haste. Butters, get out. The little M.E. blinked up at me. What? Get out, I said, my voice harsher. There's a fire exit at the far side of the gallery. Go out it. Run. Get out of here and don't stop until you're someplace safe. Don't look back. Don't slow down. He stared at me his eyes huge, his face deathly pale. Now! I snarled. Butters bolted. I could hear terrified little sounds escaping his throat as he sprinted toward the far end of the gallery. I closed my eyes and concentrated again, drawing in my will and power as I did so, casting my senses about in an effort to find the source of the dark power. I touched the necromantic working again, and this time I didn't even try to hide my presence by pulling away. Whoever it was had come in through the door I'd broken open. I could feel a slithering sort of power there, mixed in with a cold kind of lust, a passion for despair. I walked to the railing of the gallery and looked down into the entry hall. Gravain stood below, trench coat wet and swaying, water dripping from the brim of his fedora. There was a half-circle of dead men standing behind him and he beat a slow rhythm on his leg with one hand. I wanted to cut and run, but I couldn't. I had to hold things up here until Butters had a chance to get away. And besides, if I ran away toward the back exit and nowhere near my car, Gravain's zombies would catch me and tear me apart. I licked my lips, struggling to weigh my options. Then I had an idea. Holding my pentacles chain in my teeth for light, I opened the book and started flipping through it, one page after another. I didn't read it. I didn't even try to read it. I just opened the pages, fixed my gaze at a couple of points on each, and moved on. It wasn't a long book. I was finished less than two minutes later. There was a sound from the stairway, and I rose, readying my shield bracelet. Gravain came onto the gallery floor, zombies marching behind him. He stood and stared at me for a moment, his expression impossible to read. Stay back, I said quietly. He blinked at me very slowly. 
Why? I held up the book in one hand. Because I've got the word here, Gravane, and if you don't back off, I'll burn it to ash. His eyes widened, and he lurched a half-step closer to me, licking his lips. No, you won't, he said. You know that. You want the power as much as I do. God, you people are dysfunctional, I said. But just to save time, I'll give you a reason that you're capable of understanding. I've read the book. I don't need it anymore. So, if you push me, I'll be glad to flash-fry it for you. You didn't read it, Gravain spat. You haven't had it for ten minutes. Speed reading, I lied. I can do war and peace in thirty minutes. Give me the book, Gravain said. I will allow you to live. Get out of my way, or I will allow it to burn. Gravain smiled. And suddenly a weight fell on me, like someone had dropped a lead-lined blanket on my shoulders. My ears filled with rushing, hissing whispers. I stumbled and felt a dozen flashes of burning, needle-fine pain. And between that and the extra weight, I fell to my knees. It took me a second to realize what was happening. Snakes. I was covered in snakes. There were too many of them to count or identify, and they were all furious. Some dark green reptile as long as my arm struck at my face, sinking fangs into my left cheek and holding on. More of them struck at my neck, my shoulders, my hands, and I screamed in panic and pain. My duster took several hits, but the inspelled leather held out against them. I tore at my neck and shoulders and head, ripping snakes free of me by main strength, their fangs tearing in my flesh as I did. I struggled to order my thoughts and rise, because I knew Gravain would be coming. I tried to gather my shield as I pushed myself to my hands and knees, but I saw a flash of a heavy boot driving toward me, and light exploded in my eyes, and I flopped back to the floor, briefly stunned. I blinked slowly, waiting for my eyes to focus. Liver spots appeared in my vision, weathered and strange, white hair wiry and stiff beneath his hat, his loose skin somehow reptilian in the dim light. I know you, I slurred, the words tumbling out without checking in with my brain. I know who you are now. Liver spots knelt down over me. He took my wrists and clamped something around them. While he did, Gravain came up and took the word of Kemmler from my limp fingers. He opened it and began scanning through pages until he found the passage he'd been looking for. He read it, stared at it for a long moment, and then opened his mouth in a slow, wheezing cackle. By the night, he said, his voice dusty and amused. It's so simple. How could I not have seen it before? You are satisfied? Liverspots asked Gravain. Entirely, Gravain said. And you will stand by our bargain. Of course, Gravain answered. He read another page of the book. A pleasure working with you. He's all yours. Gravain turned, still beating a slow rhythm on his leg, and the shambling zombies followed him. Well, Dresden, Liverspots said once they were gone. His voice was a rich, rough purr. I believe you were saying you recognized me. I stared up at him blankly. Let me help your memory, he said. 
He took an olive drab duffel bag from his shoulder and set it on the ground. Then mostly with one hand, he opened it. And he drew out a Louisville slugger. Oh, my God. I tried to move, but I couldn't. The metal bindings burned cold on my wrists. You, I said. You busted up my car. Mm-hmm. Much as you broke my ankles, my knees, my wrists, and my hands with the Louisville Slugger baseball bat while I lay helpless on the floor. Quintus Cassius, the snake boy, the serpent-summoning sorcerer and former knight of the Order of the Blackened Denarius, smiled down at me. He leaned over, kneeling, and far too close to me for comfort, and whispered to me as if to a lover. I have dreamed of this night, boy, he purred and gently stroked the side of my face with the baseball bat. In my day, we would say that revenge is sweet, but times have changed. How do you say? Payback is a bitch. Chapter 37 I stared up at the withered old man I'd called liver spots, and behind the loose skin, the wrinkles, the white wiry hair, I could see the man who had been one of the Order of the Blackened Denarius. How? I asked him. How did you find me? I didn't, he said. The coroner's apartment was easy enough to find. I took hairs from his brush. Since you were so eager to keep him sheltered under your wing... It wasn't too terribly difficult to keep track of him, and you, once we had destroyed your wards. Oh, I said. My voice shook a little. Are you afraid, boy? Cassius whispered. You're about the fifth scariest person I've met today, I said. His eyes became very cold. Don't knock it, I said. That's really better than it sounds. He rose slowly, looking down at me. The fingers of his right hand tightened and loosened on the handle of the bat. Hatred burned there as well, mindless and irrational and howling to be slaked. Cassius hadn't exactly been stable when I'd faced him two years before. From the look of him now, he was preparing a campaign for the presidency of the World Psychosis Association. I knew that Cassius was a killer, like few I'd ever seen. He had spent what might have been fifteen or sixteen centuries bound to a different fallen angel within his own silver coin, working hand in hand with the head of the order. He had, I was sure, personally done away with hundreds of foes who had done far less to him than I had. He would kill me. If a flash of rage took him, he'd cave my head in with that bat, screaming the whole time. I shuddered at the image and reached out for my magic seeing if I could draw in enough to try to sucker-punch him. But when I tried, the manacles on my wrist suddenly writhed, moving, and dozens of sharp points suddenly pricked into my wrists, as if I had swept my hand through a rose bush. I winced in pain, my breath frozen in my chest for a second. Cassius smiled at me. Don't bother. We've used those manacles on wizards and witches for centuries. Nicodemus himself designed them. Yeah, ouch, I winced, 
but no amount of writhing would move my arms very much, and I couldn't move to try to make the thorny manacles hurt less. Cassius stared down at me, his eyes bright. He stood there, watching me try to writhe, enjoying my helplessness and pain. An image flashed through my mind. An old man of faith and courage who had willingly given himself into the hands of the Order in exchange for my freedom. Shiro had died after sustaining the most hideous torments I had ever seen visited upon a human body, and some of them had come at the hands of Cassius. I closed my eyes. I knew what he wanted. He wanted to hurt me. He wanted to see how much pain he could deliver before I died, and there was nothing I could do to prevent it. Unless... I thought of what Shiro had told me about having faith. For him, it was a theological and moral truth upon which he had based his life. I didn't have the same kind of belief, but I'd seen how forces of light and darkness came into conflict, how imbalances were redressed. Cassius was in the service of some of the darkest forces on the planet. Shiro would have said that nothing he did could have prevented a balancing force of light, such as Shiro and his brother Knights, from being placed in his way. In my own experience, I had noticed that when something truly, deeply evil arose, one of the Knights tended to show up. Maybe one would show up to face Cassius. Hell's bells. That was mighty thin. But it was technically possible and it was all I had. I almost laughed. What I needed to survive this lunatic was something I had never had much of. Faith. I had to believe that some other factor would intervene. I had no other option. But that didn't mean I couldn't try to help intervention along. The longer I kept breathing, the more likely it was that someone would happen across the scene, maybe even someone who could help, maybe even someone like my friend, Michael. I had to keep Cassius talking. What happened to you? I asked him a moment later, opening my eyes. I'd read somewhere that people love to talk about themselves. The last time I saw you, you could have passed for forty. Cassius stared at me for a moment more, and then leaned his bat on the floor. It was a result of losing my coin to you and your friends, he said, voice creaking. While I held my coin... Salurio prevented age from ravaging my body. Now, nature is collecting her due from me, plus interest. He waved his stiff-fingered right hand, wrinkled, spotted, swollen with what looked like bad arthritis. If she has her way, I will be dead within the year. Why? I asked him. Isn't your new demon stopping the clock for you? His eyes narrowed, unsteady and cold. I have no denarius now, he said, his voice low and very polite. When I eventually left the hospital and rejoined Nicodemus, he had no coin being held as a spare. Mad fire flickered through his gaze. You see, he'd given it to you. I swallowed. That's what you were looking for, outside my apartment. You wanted a denarius. Lashiel wouldn't be my first choice, but I must be content with what is available. Uh-huh. So, where's Nicodemus? He's helping you, I take it. 
Cassius's eyes closed almost all the way. Nicodemus cast me out. He said that if I was too much a fool to keep possession of my coin, that I deserved whatever befell me. What a guy. Cassius shrugged. He is a man of power, with no tolerance for fools. Once you are dead and Lashiel's coin is mine, he will take me back. You sound pretty confident there, I said. Is there some reason I should not be? He moved stiffly over to his duffel bag. You should make this simpler for both of us. I'm willing to make you an offer. Give it to me now, and I will make your death quick. I don't have it, I told him. He let out a rough cackle. There are only so many places one can hide it, he said. If you are holding it as part of you, enough pain will make you drop it. He drew out a slender little coping saw from the bag and set it on the floor. I once knew a man who swallowed his denarius and would swallow it again when it came through. Yuck, I said. Cassius put a standard head screwdriver down next to the saw. And one who cut himself open and placed the coin in his abdominal cavity. He drew a vicious-looking hooked linoleum knife from the bag and held it thoughtfully. If you tell me, I'll take your throat. And if I don't, I asked. He pared a yellowed fingernail with the knife. I go on a treasure hunt. I studied him for a minute, then said, I don't have it with me. That's the truth. I bound Lashiel and buried the coin. He let out a snarl and snatched at my left hand. He tore my glove from it and then twisted my hand to show me my own horribly scarred palm and the name sigil of the demon Lashiel upon it, the only skin that wasn't layered in scar tissue. You have it, he spat, and it's mine. I took a deep breath and tried to embrace an optimistic conviction in the moral rectitude of my cause, to think positive. Hey, hideous torture would draw things out. It wasn't the way I would have chosen to stall Cassius, but again, I wasn't spoiled for choice. I'm telling you the truth, I said. Besides, you wouldn't have made it quick, even if I did give it to you. He smiled. It looked grandfatherly. Probably, he agreed. He reached into the duffel bag again and pulled out a three-foot length of heavy chain, the kind they used to use for bicycle locks. He held it in one hand while he moved my wrists, lifting them so that I lay flat on my back, my arms outstretched over my head. I'm a winner either way. I wasn't strong enough to move them. The damn manacles made me weaker than a newborn kitten. Surrender your coin, Cassius said pleasantly, and he gave me a hard kick in the ribs. It drove the breath from me and hurt like hell. I managed to choke out the words, Don't have it! Surrender your coin, he said again and this time he swung the chain and lashed it down hard over my stomach. My duster was open, and the chain tore through my shirt and ripped at the flesh of my belly. My vision went red with a sudden haze of agony. I don't... I began. Surrender your coin, he purred, and he hit me again with the chain. Rinse and repeat. I don't know how many times. 
An eternity later, Cassius touched his tongue to some of the blood on the chain and regarded me thoughtfully. I hope you aren't too impatient for me to get the bat, he said. You see, my balance is quite unsteady these days. I'm told it's a result of all the damage to my knees and ankles. I lay there, hurting. My belly and chest were on fire. Blood from one of the snake bites had trickled into my left eye and had crusted my eyelashes together so that I couldn't open it again. You see, I've only got this one good hand to swing the bat with. My other was badly broken by multiple blunt impact traumas. One-handed, I'm afraid, is difficult to aim properly or judge the power of my swing. I tried to look around me, but I couldn't get my right eye to move properly. As a result, Cassius continued, once I start paying you back for what you did to me, I'm afraid it's quite likely that I might hit you too hard and too many times. And I want to savor this. Where was Michael? Where was anyone? Cassius leaned down and said, And when I start, Dresden, I want to be free to indulge myself, to really let go and live the moment. I'm sure you understand. No one is coming to save you, Harry. I rasped. I told you. He paused, eyebrows lifted, and rolled a hand. Pray continue. Told you, I said, and it was marred with a groan. Told you, if I ever saw you again, I would kill you. He let out a low, amused little chuckle and put the chain down. He picked up the linoleum knife, then he knelt stiffly down beside me and calmly cut my shirt open and spread it and my duster away from my abdomen. I remember, he said, one should never make promises one cannot keep. I didn't, I told him quietly. Best you hurry then, he told me. I can't imagine you have more than a few moments to make good. He prodded my belly with his finger, drawing a gasp of pain from me. Mmm, nice and tender now. The better to cut through. I watched the knife move, slow and bright and beautiful. Time seemed to slow down as it did. Damn it, I was not going to die. I was not going to let this murderous bastard kill me. I was going to survive. I didn't know how I would do it, but my will locked onto the notion, and I found myself grinding my teeth. I had shown him mercy before. He'd had his chance to walk away. I was going to live, and I was going to kill him. The knife bit into the muscle of my stomach. He moved it very slowly, staring at the inner edge of the hooked blade as he drew it toward my groin in a gradually deepening incision. It hurt almost as much as the chain, but it left me with enough breath to scream. I did. I howled at him at the top of my lungs. I shrieked profanities at him. I even managed to twitch my body a little, and I began calling up my will again, bringing fresh agony from the manacles. He finished his first long, shallow, almost delicate cut, lifted the knife from my flesh, and repositioned it beside the first. The whole while I never stopped ranting at the top of my lungs. I doubted it was coherent enough to understand, but it described my feelings perfectly. 
I screamed, and I kept on screaming. And because I did, Cassius never heard Mouse's claws on the marble floor. The air suddenly shook with a bellowing, damn near leonine roar. Cassius's head whipped around in time to see my dog leap from twenty feet away and hurtle forward like a gray-furred wrecking ball. Mouse's front paws hit Cassius squarely on the sternum, and a blood-curdling snarl exploded from the huge dog's chest as they both went down. Mouse snapped his jaws at Cassius's throat, but he had too much momentum remaining from his charge. His paws slid on the smooth floor, carrying him past Cassius, before his teeth could do more than lightly rip at one shoulder. Cassius screamed in rage, crouching, and flicked his hand at Mouse. There was a surge of dark magic, a shimmering blur, and suddenly a serpent coalesced from the shadows, lying upon the gallery. It reared up for a second, and I could see the deadly outline of a cobra's hood rising a good five feet from the floor. Then the serpent launched itself at Mouse. My dog saw it coming, sprang back from the serpent's first strike, and then leapt forward, jaws trying to latch on behind the shadow serpent's head. Lashing loops of reptilian darkness whipped into coils that tried to trap the big dog, and the pair of them rolled along the floor, each seeking to grasp and kill the other. Cassius stared at Mouse for a second, eyes wide, and then turned to me. There was actual, literal foam at the corner of his mouth, and his face was stretched into a grotesque grimace of fury. He lurched over to my side, speaking a language I didn't recognize in a half-hysterical shriek. Then he seized my hair, jerked my head back to bare my throat, and swept the knife down toward my jugular. Before his arm was halfway down, there was a thin, high-pitched, tinny-sounding wail. Butters threw himself onto Cassius's back, carrying them both over me and to the floor. The knife missed me entirely and went skittering away on impact. Cassius snarled another oath and tried to crawl for the knife. Butters tried to pull Cassius away, his face deathly pale. The little guy had all the fighting prowess of a leatherback turtle, but he got his arms and legs around Cassius's torso and clung like a wild-haired monkey. Cassius's body may have been weakened, but he'd had more than a millennium to learn about infighting. He twisted his shoulders and then slammed the side of his head into Butters' nose with a crunching sound of impact. Butters reeled from the blow and blood spattered his face and upper lip. Cassius then twisted again and escaped Butters' grip. He heaved himself toward the knife. Butters! I screamed, helpless to move and furious and terrified. Don't let him get the weapon! The little medical examiner shook his head once, then let out that tinny wail of challenge again and threw himself at Cassius. Butters caught him around one leg. Cassius kicked at his face, but Butters ducked his head down and the blows rolled off his shoulders. Cassius pushed himself a little closer to the knife. Butters lifted his head with a squeak of defiance and sank his teeth into Cassius's leg. The former Denarian howled in sudden, startled pain. Another bellowing roar shook the gallery, and I looked up to see Mouse gripping the shadow serpent's neck in his heavy jaws. Mouse shook his head violently. There was a burst of crunching sounds, and suddenly the shadow serpent stiffened and then abruptly dissolved into gallons and gallons of translucent, gelatinous ectoplasm. Butters yelped, and I looked up to see Cassius holding the knife 
sweeping it clumsily at his opponent. Butters skittered away from the knife, eyes wide with terror. But he skittered directly between Cassius and me, and held his ground. Mouse didn't skip a beat after killing the serpent. This time he rushed forward, low, his snarls in chorus with the growling of thunder outside. He hit Cassius at the knees with the full power of his body, and Cassius went down like a ten-pin before a bowling ball. Butters rushed forward and kicked at Cassius's knife hand. The weapon skittered away again, over the edge of the gallery and into the great hall below. Cassius kicked at Butters and got him in the shins, sending Butters to the floor. Cassius got out from under Mouse and lurched for me, his eyes mad, his hands outstretched in strangling claws. Mouse landed on his back and the huge dog's jaws closed on the man's neck. Cassius froze in place in sudden terror, his eyes very wide. He stared at me. For a second, there was total silence. I gave you a chance, I told him, my voice quiet. Quintus Cassius's liver-spotted face went pale with horrified comprehension. Wait. Mouse, I said. Kill him. I had only one open eye with which to watch Cassius meet his end. But in that final second, rage and terror and horrified realization flashed through his eyes. And just as Mouse's jaws crushed the delicate bones of his neck, there was a flare of ugly energies, a flash of unholy purplish light around him, and he spoke words that rang in echoes totally out of proportion to their volume. Die alone, he spat. A flood of power hit me, and my vision went black. The last thing I heard was the snapping of bone. Chapter 38 I didn't wake up. It was more like I felt myself putting together some kind of awareness, the way a stagehand constructs a set. Evidently, I was a minimalist because the reality I awoke to was a bare black floor, a single hanging lamp overhead, and three chairs. I walked forward into the light and stared at the chairs. In one sat Lashiel, again in her angelic, blonde, wholesome form. She wasn't wearing the white tunic, though. Instead, she was clothed in an Illinois Department of Corrections prison jumpsuit. The orange suited her hair and complexion quite well. She wore prison shackles, wrists and feet, and sat primly in her chair. In the second chair was me. Well, it was a version of me some kind of subconscious alter-ego of mine. His hair was clipped shorter and neater than mine, and he wore a dark beard that was kept in similar fastidious order. He wore a black silk shirt, black trousers, and his hands, both of them, were unmarred, his fingertips held together in a steeple that rested on his chin. Another dream, I said, and sighed. I slumped down into the third chair, I looked more or less as I had when I woke up that morning. My shirt was slashed open, though there wasn't any blood on my torso, and my skin hadn't been pounded and ripped with a chain. Wishful thinking. Not precisely a dream, the subconscious me said. Call it a meeting of the minds. Lashiel smiled very slightly. 
No, I said, and pointed at Lashiel. I've said everything I intend to say to her. I turned to my alter ego, though on thinking about it, maybe alter id was more accurate. As for you, you're sort of a jerk, and the whole look you've got going there says evil wizard, which I am now professionally opposed to. Alterna Harry sighed. I've told you before, I'm not some sort of dark demon. I'm simply the more primal essence of yourself, the one most concerned with such matters as food, survival. His dark eyes flickered idly over Lashiel. Mating, he said, a lazy growl to the tone. He looked back to me. The important things in life. That I am even having this dream probably means that I need a good therapist, I said. I stared at my other self and said, It was you, wasn't it? You wanted to pick up the coin. Make sure you remember that I am a part of you before you point any fingers, he said. And yes, the potential for power in an alliance with Lashiel, he inclined his head to her, a courtly, gentlemanly gesture, damn his chivalrous eyes, was too great to simply ignore. There are too many things out there determined to kill you. So long as you keep Lashiel's coin, you both have the option to seek more power, if necessary, to protect yourself or others. And you prevent the coin from being used by unscrupulous sorts like Cassius. I grimaced. So? So, he said, this is a time to consider employing a portion of that power. I stared at him and said, You've been talking to her behind my back. Four months, he said calmly. It was only polite. After all, you wanted nothing to do with her. You asshole, I said. The whole reason I wasn't talking was that I didn't want the temptation. I did, my subconscious said. Honestly, you should listen to me more often. If you'd taken my advice about Murphy, she wouldn't be in Hawaii, in bed with Kincaid. Lashiel coughed gently and said, Gentlemen, if I might offer a suggestion, both I and my alternative self said, at the same time and in exactly the same voice, Shut up. Lashiel blinked, but did. My double and I eyed each other, and I nodded slowly. We're in agreement, then, that her presence and her influence are dangerous. We are, my double said. She must not be allowed to dictate actions or to direct our choices through suggestion or manipulation. My double looked at her and said, But she can and should be used as a resource under careful control. She can offer us enormous amounts of information. He eyed her again and said, And amusement. Lashiel left her eyes down and smiled very slightly. No, I said. I've got Bob when I want information. And if I want sex, I'll figure out something. You don't have Bob now, my double said, and you've wanted sex since about twenty minutes after the last time you had it. That's beside the point, I told him sullenly. I'm not quite insane enough to let a fallen angel give me virtual nookie just for kicks. Listen to me, he said, and his voice became sharp, commanding. Here's the cold truth. You are determined to take us into battle against forces you cannot possibly overcome through main strength. 
Not only that, but your source of assistance, the wardens, may also turn against you if they learn the truth about what you're attempting. You are wounded. You are out of contact with your other allies. It's the right thing to do, I said, setting my jaw. My double rolled his eyes. Tell me, is it morally necessary for you to die in the process? I glowered at him. This meeting is just a formality, you know, he said. You are already planning on asking Lashiel's shadow for her help. That's why you read through the book as you did, before it was taken from you. You wanted it to go through your mind so that she could see it, and provide you with the text as she did for the summoning of the Earl King. I lifted a finger. I only did that in case I wasn't able to pry enough out of Gravain to figure out exactly what Kemmler's disciples are doing. My double arched a brow. How'd that work out for you? Don't be a wise-ass, I said. The point, he said, is that you have little or no chance to prevail if you blindly rush in. You must know how they intend to manipulate these energies. You must know if there is a weak time or place at which to assault them. You must know the details of the Dark Hollow, or you might as well cut your own wrists. Don't have to, I told him. I could just sit and wait for the Earl King to come by. Six of one, half a dozen of another, my double agreed. In addition, your body is in no condition to do anything at the moment, he leaned forward. Free her to help us. I inhaled slowly and stared at Lashiel for a moment. Then I said, After I killed Justin and got my head together at Ebenezer's place, I promised myself something. I promised that I would live my life on my own terms, that I knew the difference between right and wrong, and that I wouldn't cross the line. I wouldn't allow myself to become like Justin de Morn. Don't you want to survive? my double asked. I rose from the chair and started walking into the darkness outside the light. Of course I do, but some things are more important than survival. Yeah, my double said, like the people who are going to get killed when you die and don't stop Kemmler's disciples. I froze at the edge of the darkness. Take the high road if you want to, my double said. Choose to walk away from this strength in the name of principle. But after your noble death, everyone you no longer protect, everyone who might one day have come to you for help, everyone who was killed in the aftermath of the Dark Hallow, every life, you might have protected in the future, will be on your head. I stared at the darkness and then closed my eyes. Regardless of where it came from, Lashiel offers you the power of knowledge. If you turn aside from that power, power only you can take up, then you abandon your commitment to protect and defend those who are not strong enough to do it themselves. No, I said. That isn't... That isn't my responsibility. Of course it is, my subconscious said, voice clear and sharp. You coward. I stopped and turned, staring at him. If you go to your death, rather than do everything you might to prevent what is happening, you are merely committing suicide and trying to make yourself feel better about it. That is the act of a coward. It is beneath contempt. I went through the logic of his argument and didn't make any headway against it, of course. While my double might look like another person, he wasn't. 
it was me. If I open this door now, I said slowly, I might not be able to close it again. Or you might, my double said. I have no intention of allowing her any control, so you will be the one who determines it. What if I can't contain her again once she's freed? Why shouldn't you be able to? It's your mind, your will, your choice. You still believe in free will, do you not? It's dangerous, I said. Of course it is. And now you must choose. Will you face that danger? Or will you run from it, and so condemn those who need your strength to their deaths? I stared at him for a minute. Then I looked at Lashiel. She waited, her eyes steady, her expression calm. Can you do it? I asked her bluntly. Can you show me what was on those pages? Of course, she answered, her manner one of subservience without a trace of resentment. I would be pleased to offer you whatever assistance you permit. She looked humble. She looked cooperative. But I knew better. The mere shadow of the fallen angel Lashiel was a vital and powerful force. She might look humble and cooperative, but if that was her true nature, she wouldn't have fallen to begin with. I didn't think she was harboring murderous impulses or anything. My instincts told me that she was genuinely pleased to help me. After all, that was the first step. And she had patience. She could afford to wait. Dangerous indeed. Lashiel represented nothing less than the intrinsic allure of power itself. I had never sought to become a wizard. Hell, a lot of the time I thought about how nice things might be if I hadn't been one. The power had been a birthright, and if it had grown since then, it had done so by the necessity of survival. But I tasted a darker side to the possession of power, the searing satisfaction of seeing an enemy fall to my strength the lust to test myself against another, to challenge them and see who was the strongest, the mindless hunger for more that, if once indulged, might never be slaked. One of the coldest, most evil souls I have ever encountered once told me that the reason I fought so hard to do what seemed right was that I was terrified to look within me and see the desire to cease the fight and do as I would, free of conscience or remorse. And now I could see that he had been right. I looked at the fallen angel, patiently waiting, and was terrified. But there were innocent lives at stake, men and women and children who needed protection. If I didn't give it to them, who would? I took a deep breath, reached into my pocket, and found a silver key there. I threw it to my double. He caught it and rose. Then he unlocked Lashiel's shackles. Lashiel inclined her head to him respectfully. Then she walked over to me, gorgeous and warm in the harsh light, her eyes lowered. Without a trace of self-consciousness, she sank down to her knees, bowed her head, and said, How may I serve you, my host? I opened my eyes and found myself on my back. There was a candle burning nearby. Mouse had curled himself protectively around my head, and his tongue was flicking over my face, rough and wet and warm. I hurt absolutely everywhere. 
I'd learned to block out pain under the harsh lessons of Justin DeMorne, but it went only so far. Lashiel had shown me a different technique. I couldn't have explained to anyone what I did. I wasn't sure that I understood it myself, at least on a conscious level. I simply knew. I gathered the pain together and fed it into a burning fire of determination in my thoughts, and it began to steadily recede. I exhaled slowly and began to sit up. My brain registered the screaming torture of the muscles in my stomach. It just wasn't horribly important and took up little of my attention. By God, Harry, Butter said. His voice was thick and slurred, as if he were holding his nose. His hand pushed on my shoulder. Don't sit up. I let him push me back down. I needed a couple of minutes to let the pain continue to fade. How bad is it? He exhaled. It's pretty hideous, but I don't think he actually perforated the abdominal wall. Skin and tissue damage, but you did some bleeding. He swallowed and looked a little green around the gills. That's my best guess, anyway. You okay? Yeah. Yeah, fine. It's just... I work with corpses because I just couldn't handle, you know, actual living people. <laughs> you can eat lunch while looking at a three-month-old corpse, but first aid on my stomach is too much to handle? Yeah. I mean, you're still alive. That's just weird. I shook my head. How long was I out? I was surprised at how calm and steady my voice sounded. It's been about fifteen minutes, Butter said. I found some bandages and alcohol in the old man's duffel bag. I've got your belly cleaned and covered, but I don't have much of an idea of how much trouble you're in. You need a hospital. Maybe later, I said. I lay on my back, poring over what Lashiel had given me about the writings in the book. Hell, the thing had been written in German. I didn't know German, but Lashiel had translated the text about the Dark Hallow. It felt like we had talked about it for an hour or more, but dream time and real time aren't always lockstepped. Butters's nose had swollen up. There was still some blood on his face, and he already had a matched set of gorgeously colorful black eyes. He leaned over and fussed with the bandages on my stomach. Hey, I said quietly, I told you to run. I was doing that heroic rearguard thing. You screwed it all up. Sorry, he answered, his voice serious. But... I got outside and I couldn't run. I mean, I wanted to. I really wanted to. But after all you've done for me, he shook his head, I just couldn't do that. What did you do? I ran around the outside of the museum. I tried to find help, but with all the rain and the dark, there wasn't anyone around. So I ran to the car and got Mouse. I thought that maybe he could help you. He could, I agreed. He did. Mouse's tail thumped on the floor, and he kept on licking at my head. I realized, dully, that he was cleaning the dozens of tiny snake bites. But he couldn't have done it without you, Butters, I said. You saved my life. Another five minutes, and I'd have been history. He blinked down at me for a moment, and then said, I did, didn't I? Damn brave of you, I said. His spine straightened a little. You think? Yeah. And check it out, he said, gesturing at his face, his mouth opening into a toothy smile. 
I have a broken nose, don't I? Absolutely, I said. Like I'm a boxer, or maybe a tough-as-nails gumshoe. You earned it, I said. Hurt? Like hell, he said, but he was still smiling. He blinked a few times, the gears almost visibly spinning in his head, and said, I didn't run away. And I fought him. I jumped on him. I kept quiet and let him process it. My God, he said. That was... that was so stupid. Actually, when you survive, it gets reclassified as courageous. I reached out my right hand. Butters shook it, gripping hard. He looked at Cassius's body and his smile faded. What about him? he asked. He's done, I said. That's not what I mean. Oh, I said. We'll leave the body here. No time to move it. It'll be a John Doe on the public records, and there probably won't be a heavy investigation. If we get out quick, it shouldn't be an issue. No, I mean... I mean, my God, he's dead. We killed him. Don't kid yourself, I told him. I'm the one who killed him. All you did was try to help me. His brow furrowed and he shook his head. That's not what I mean either. I feel sorry for him. Don't, I said. He was a monster. Butters frowned and nodded. But he was also a man. Or was once. He was so bitter. So much hate. He had a horrible life. Note the past tense, I said. Had. Butters looked away from the corpse. What happened there at the very end? There was a light, and his voice sounded... weird. I thought he'd killed you. He hit me with his death curse, I said. Butters swallowed. I guess it didn't work? I mean, because you're breathing. It worked, I told him. I'd felt that vicious magic grab hold of me and sink in. I don't think he was strong enough to kill me outright, so he went for something else. Die alone? Butters asked quietly. What does that mean? I don't know, I said. Not sure I want to. I took a deep breath and then exhaled. I didn't have enough time to lie there waiting to recover. Butters, I don't have any right to ask this of you. I'm already in your debt, but I need your help. You have it, he said. I haven't even told you what it is, I said. Butters smiled a little and nodded. I know, but you have it. I felt my lips peel back from my teeth in a fierce grin. One little assault and you've gone habitual. Next thing I know, you'll be forming a fight club. Help me up. You shouldn't, he said seriously. No choice, I said. He nodded and then stood up and offered me his hand. I took it and rose, waiting to sway or pass out or throw up from the pain. I did none of those things. The pain was there, but it didn't stop me from moving or thinking. Butters just stared at me and then shook his head. I found my staff, picked it up, and walked to the Buffalo Bill exhibit. Butters got the candle, and then he and Mouse kept pace. I looked around for a second, then picked up a long, heavy-duty extension cord running from an outlet on the wall to power some lights on an exhibit in the center of the room. I jerked it clear at both ends and gathered it into a neat loop. Once I had it, I passed it to Butters. What are you doing? he asked. Preparing, I said. I found out about the Dark Hallow. Butters blinked. You did? How? I grunted.
Magic. Okay, he said. What did you learn? That this isn't a rite. It's a big spell, I said. It all depends on drawing together a ton of dark spiritual energy. Like what? he asked. Like a lot of things. The necromantic energy around animated corpses and manifested shades, the predatory spirits of ancient hunters, all the fear that's been growing since last night, plus the past several years have seen some serious magical turbulence around Chicago. Kemmler's disciples can put that turbulence to work for them, too. Then what? They gather it together and get it going in a big circle. It creates a kind of vortex, which then funnels down into whoever is trying to consume the energy. Poof! Insta-god. He frowned. I'm not very clued in on this magic stuff, but that sounds kind of dangerous. Hell yeah, I said, and crossed the room to a rack of riding equipment. It's like trying to inhale a tornado. Holy crap, Butters said. But how does that help us? First of all, I found out that the vortex itself is deadly. It's going to draw off the life of every living thing around it. Butters gulped. It will kill everything? Not at first, but when the wizard at the vortex draws down the power, it's going to create a kind of vacuum where all that power used to be. The vacuum will rip away the life energy of everything within a mile. Dear God, that will kill thousands of people. Only if they finish the spell, I said. Until then, the farther back you are from it, the less it will do, I said. But to get near the vortex, the only way to survive it is to surround yourself with necromantic energy of your own. Only those with ghosts or zombies need apply, he asked. Exactly. I lifted a saddle from the rack. Then I got a second one. I hung both over opposite ends of my staff and picked it up like a plowman's yoke, the saddles hanging. I started walking down the stairs. But wait, Butters said. What are you going to do? Get to the center of the vortex, I said. The effort it will take to work this spell is incredible. I don't care how good Cowl is. If I hit him as he tries to draw down the vortex, it's going to shake his concentration. The spell will be ruined. The backlash will kill him. And everyone will be all right? he asked. That's the plan. He nodded and then stopped abruptly in his tracks. I felt his stare burning into my back. But, Harry, to get there, you'll have to call up the dead yourself. I stopped and looked over my shoulder at him. Comprehension dawned in his eyes. And you need a drummer. Yeah. He swallowed. Could... Could you get in trouble with your people for doing this? It's possible, I said, but there's a technicality I can exploit. What do you mean? The laws of magic specifically refer to the abuse of magic when used against our fellow human beings. Technically, it only counts if you call up human corpses. But you told me that everyone only calls humans. Right. So, while the laws of magic only address necromancy as used on human corpses, there usually isn't any need for a distinction. Nutty necromancers only call up humans. Sane wizards don't touch necromancy at all. I don't think anyone has tried something like this. We reached the main level of the museum. It's going to be dangerous, I told him. I think we can do it, but I can't make you any promises. 
I don't know if I can protect you. Butters walked beside me for several steps, his expression serious. You can't try it without someone's help. And if you don't stop it, the spell will kill thousands of people. Yes, I said. But I can't order you to help me. I can only ask. He licked his lips. I can keep a beat, he said. I nodded and reached my destination. I slipped my improvised yoke off my shoulders and dropped both saddles to the floor. My breathing was a little harsh from the effort, even though I barely noticed the pain and strain. You'll need a drum. Butters nodded. There were some tom-toms upstairs. I'll go get one. I shook my head. Too high-pitched. Your polka suit is still in the beetle's trunk, right? Yes. I nodded. Then I looked up. And up and up. Another flash of lightning illuminated the pale, towering terror of Sue, the most complete Tyrannosaurus skeleton mankind has ever discovered. Okay, Butters, I told him. Go get it. Chapter 39 By the time we got outside, the storm had turned into something with its own vicious will. Rain lashed down in blinding cold sheets. Wind howled like a starving beast. Lightning burned almost continually across the sky, and the accompanying thunder was a constant rumbling snarl. This was the kind of storm that came only once or twice in a century, and I had never seen its equal. That said, the entire thing was nothing but a side effect of the magical forces now at work over the city. The apprehension, tension, fear, and anger of its people had coalesced into dark power that rode over Chicago in the storm. The Earl King's presence, I could still hear the occasional shrieking howl amidst the storm's angry roaring, stirred that energy even more. I shielded my eyes from the rain as best I could with one hand, staring up at the lightning-threaded skies. There, a few miles to the north, I found what I had expected. A slow and massive rotation in the storm clouds, a spiral of fire and air and water that rolled with ponderous grace through its cycle. There! I called back to Butters and pointed. You see it? My God, he said. He clutched at my shoulders with both hands to hold himself steady, and his bass drum pulsed steadily behind me. Is that it? That's it, I growled. I shook the water from my eyes and clutched at the saddle horn to keep my balance. It's starting. What a mess, Butters said. He glanced behind us at the broken brick and debris and wreckage of the museum's front doors. Is she all right? One way to find out, I growled. Yeah, mule! I laid my left hand on the rough, pebbled skin of my steed and willed it forward. The saddle lurched and I clutched hard with my other hand to stay on. The first few steps were the worst. The saddle sat at a sharp incline, not too unlike that on a rearing horse. But as my mount gathered speed, the length of her body tilted forward until her spine was almost parallel with the ground. I didn't know this before, but as it turns out, tyrannosaurs can really haul ass. She might have been as long as a city bus, but Sue, despite her weight, moved with power and grace. As I'd called forth energy-charged ectoplasm to clothe the ancient bones, they had become covered in sheets of muscle and a hide of heavy, surprisingly supple quasi-flesh. She was dark gray, and there was a ripple pattern of black along her head, back, and flanks, almost like that of a jaguar. And once I had shaped the vessel, 
I had reached out and found the ancient spirit of the predator that had animated it in life. Animals might not have the potential power of human remains, but the older the remains, the more magic can be drawn to fill them, and Sue was sixty-five million years old. She had power. She had power in spades. I had rigged the saddles to straddle her spine, just at the bend where neck joined body. I'd had to improvise to get them around her, using the long extension cords to tie them into place, and it had been ticklish as hell to get Butters on board without his losing the beat and destroying my control of the dino zombie. But Butters had pulled through. Sue bellowed out a basso shriek that rattled nearby buildings and broke a few windows as she hurtled forward down the streets of the city. The blinding rain and savage storm had left the streets all but deserted, but even so there were earthquakes less noticeable than a freaking tyrannosaur. The streets literally shook under her feet. In fact, we left acres of strained, cracked asphalt behind us. Here's something else I bet you didn't know about tyrannosaurs. They don't corner well. The first time I tried to take a left, Sue swung wide, the enormous momentum of her body simply too much for even her muscles to lightly command. She swung up onto the sidewalk, crushed three parked cars under her feet, knocked over two light poles, kicked a compact car end over end to land on its roof, and broke every window on the first two floors of the building beside us as her tail lashed back and forth in an effort to counterbalance her body. Oh my God! Butters screamed. He kept hanging on to me with his arms, stabbing his legs out alternately to either side in order to operate the bass drum strapped on his back. They're probably insured, I shouted. Thank God the streets weren't crowded that night. I made a note to be sure to have Sue slow down a little before we turned again and kept the focus of my will on her, her attention on the task at hand. Just before we turned onto Lakeshore Drive, we hit a National Guard checkpoint. There were a couple of Army Hummers there, their headlights casting useless cones of light into the night and storm, wooden roadblocks and two luckless G.I.s and rain ponchos. As Sue bore down on them, the two men stared, their faces white. One of them simply dropped his assault rifle from numb hands. Get out of the way, fools! I screamed. The two men dove for cover. Sue's foot crashed down onto the hood of one Hummer, crushing it to the asphalt, and then we were past the checkpoint and pounding our way down the street toward Evanston. Ha! I said, looking back over my shoulder. I'd love to hear how they explain that to their CO. You crushed that truck! Butters shouted. You're like a human wrecking ball! There was a thoughtful pause, and then he said, Hey, are we going anywhere near my boss's place? Because he just won't shut up about his new Jaguar. Maybe later. For now, look sharp, I told him. She's a lot faster than I thought. We'll be there in just a minute. I ducked under the corner of a billboard as Sue went by it. Whatever you do, keep that drumbeat going. Do you understand? Right, Butters said. If I stop, no more dinosaur. No, I called back. If you stop, the dinosaur does whatever the hell it wants to. Shouts rose up from a side street where a couple more guardsmen saw us go by. Sue turned her head toward them and let out another challenging bellow that broke more windows and startled the guardsmen so much that they fell down. I felt a surge of simple, enormous hunger run through the beast I'd called up, as though the ancient animus I'd summed up from the spirit world was beginning to remember the finer things in life. I touched Sue's neck again, sending a surge of my will down into her, jerking her head back around with a rumbling cough of protest. My ears rang in the wake of that vast sound, and I glanced over my shoulder to make sure Butters was okay. 
His face was pale. If this thing gets loose, he said, that would be bad. Which is why you shouldn't stop the drum, I told him. If Sue went wild, I could scarcely imagine the potential carnage he could inflict. I mean, good grief. Look at all the senseless victims in Jurassic Park 2. We hit Evanston, the first suburb of Chicago proper, which is mainly separated from Chicago by the presence of trees on the streets and a few more homes than high-rises. But given that it's only a block or two away from the heart of Second City, the addition of trees and homes made it feel more like a park nestled down at the feet of the city. I guided Sue into a gentler left turn onto Sheridan, slowing down enough to be sure that we wouldn't swerve off the street. As Sue headed in, I was suddenly struck with the realization of how fragile those homes seemed. Good Lord, another driving accident like the one back in town would result in a home being crushed and not just some dents and broken windows. We would be moving among precisely the people I was trying to protect. Families. Homes with children and parents and pets and grandparents. Decent folks, for the most part, who just wanted to make their homes peaceful and secure and go about their lives. Of course, if I didn't hurry up and stop the dark hallow, every house I was now passing would be filled with its dead. I checked the sky during the next long flicker of lightning and didn't like what I saw. The clouds were spinning faster, more broadly, and unnatural colors and striations had appeared in their formation, and we were almost under its center. I guided Sue down another side street, and that's when I felt the cloud of power gathering before me. It swirled and writhed against my wizard senses, sending tingling shafts of heat and cold and other less recognizable sensations running through me. I shuddered at the disorienting strength of it. There was magic being wrought ahead. A lot of it. There, Butters shouted, pointing. Down that way. That whole block is the campus. Lightning flashed again as I turned Sue down the street, and it was over the dinosaur's broad head that I saw wardens battling for their lives in the street ahead. They were in trouble. Lucio had them moving in a tight group around a cluster of... Hell's Bells. Around a group of children in colorful Halloween costumes. Morgan was at the head of the group, Lucio brought up the rear, and Yoshimo, Kowalski, and Ramirez were on the flanks. Even as I watched, I saw dozens of rotting forms lurch out of the shadows ahead of them and charge. More came running in behind them, letting out wails of mad anger. Lucio whirled to deal with them, and dear God, I suddenly saw the difference between a strong but somewhat clumsy young wizard and a master of the magic of battle. Fire lashed from her left hand. Not a gout of flame like I could call up, but a slender needle of fire so bright that it hurt the eyes to see. She swept it in an arc at thigh level, and every one of the zombies coming behind went tumbling to the ground amidst crackling sounds of shattering muscle and singeing meat. Another wave surged up behind the first. Lucio caught one of them in a grip of invisible power and hurled the undead into the ones behind, sending more of them to the ground. But a pair of the zombies got through. Lucio ducked the grasping arms of the first, caught the thing by a wrist, and sent it stumbling aside with a twist of her body that reminded me of one of Murphy's moves. The second zombie drove a hammer-heavy blow at her head, but that slender blade she wore at her side swept up out of its scabbard and took off its arm at the elbow. Another move brought a chiming surge of some power I could feel even from half a block away, singing through the silver steel of her sword, and she flicked it lightly at the zombie's head. The blade touched, there was a flash of light, and the zombie abruptly fell limp to the ground. The magic that had animated it disrupted and gone. 
In less than five seconds, Lucio had simply wiped out thirty undead. And it hadn't even been a contest. I guess you don't get to be commander of the wardens by collecting bottle caps, either. My eyes flickered back to the front of the group, where Morgan met the shock of another wave. His style was rougher and more brutal than Lucio's, but he got similar results. The heavy stomp of his foot sent a ripple through the earth that knocked undead to the ground like bowling pins. A gesture of his hand and wrist and a cry of effort drew grasping waves of concrete and earth up to clamp down on the fallen zombies. He closed his fist and the earth tightened, drawing back down into the ground, cutting and tearing its way through undead flesh and ripping the zombies to shreds. One of the creatures was still mobile, and with a look of contemptuous impatience on his face, Morgan drew the broadsword at his hip, the one used for executions of wizards, guilty of breaking one of the laws of magic, paused a beat to get the timing right, and then swung once, twice, snicker-snack, and the zombie fell apart into a number of wriggling bits. Several others got through here and there. Kowalski hammered one to the ground with unseen force, while beside him Yoshimo twisted a hand and the branches of a nearby tree reached down of their own accord, wrapped around the undead's throat, and hauled it up off the ground. Ramirez, a fighter's grin on his face, lashed out with some kind of bright green energy I'd never seen before, and the zombie nearest him simply fell apart into what looked like grains of sand. As an afterthought, he drew his sidearm as a second creature charged him and calmly put two rounds into its head from less than ten feet away. He must have been loaded up with hollow points or something, because the creature's head exploded like rotten fruit, and the rest fell twitching to the ground. None of the zombies got within ten feet of the terrified children. More of them materialized out of the rain and the night, but Lucio and the wardens kept moving steadily forward, burning and crushing and slicing and dicing their way across the street, furiously determined to get the children clear. Which is probably why they didn't see the sucker punch coming. Out of nowhere, there was the roar of an engine and an old Chrysler shot forward along the street. The driver pulled it into a sharp left turn as it got close to the wardens and their charges, and the wet rain turned it into a broadside slide. The car swept forward like an enormous broom of iron and steel, and none of the wardens were looking that way. I cried out to Sue and hung on to the saddle horn. The car slid, sending out a bow wave of sheeting water from the wet street. Ramirez's head snapped around toward the car, and he shrieked a warning. But it was too late to get out of the way. The group was still under attack, and the mindless creations that assaulted them cared nothing for self-preservation. They would continue the fight, and even if the wardens could have run from the car, they would never survive being mobbed by the undead in the chaos. In a flash of insight, I realized that these were the same tactics Gravain had used at my apartment, ruthlessly sacrificing minions in order to defeat the enemy. Everyone else's head turned toward the oncoming car. The muscles of Sue's legs tensed, and the saddle lurched. One of the little girls screamed. And then the Tyrannosaur came down from the leap that had carried her over the besieged wardens. Sue landed with one clawed foot on the street, and the other came down squarely on the caddy's hood, like a falcon descending upon a rabbit. There was an enormous sound of shrieking metal and breaking glass, and the saddle lurched wildly again. I leaned over to see what had happened. The car's hood and engine block had been compacted into a two-foot-thick section of twisted metal. Even as I looked... Sue leaned over the car in a curiously bird-like movement, opened her enormous jaws, and ripped the roof off. Inside was Li Xian, 
dressed in a black shirt and trousers. The ghoul's forehead had a nasty gash in it, and green-black blood had sheeted over one side of his face. His eyes were blank and a little vague, and I figured he'd clipped his head on the steering wheel or window when Sue brought his sliding car to an abrupt halt. Lishion shook his head and then started to scramble out of the car. Sue roared again, and the sound must have terrified Lishion because all of his limbs jerked in spasm and he fell on his face to the street. Sue leaned down again, her jaws gaping, but the ghoul rolled under the car to get away from them. So Sue kicked the car and sent it tumbling end over end three or four times down the street. The ghoul let out a scream and stared up at Sue in naked terror, covering his head with his arms. Sue ate him. Snap, gulp, no more ghoul. What's with that? Butters screamed, his voice high and frightened. Just covering his head with his arms? Didn't he see the lawyer in the movie? Those who do not learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them, I replied, turning Sue around. Hang on. I rode the dinosaur into the stream of zombies following in the warden's wake and let her go to town. Sue chomped and stomped and smacked zombies fifty feet through the air with swinging blows of her snout. Her tail batted one particularly vile-looking zombie into the brick wall of the nearest building, and the zombie hit so hard and so squishily that it just stuck to the wall like a refrigerator magnet, arms and legs spread into sprawl. In a couple of minutes, there wasn't much in the way of zombies to keep on demolishing, so I swung Sue around to pace after the wardens. They had gotten clear of the street while I covered their retreat, and I saw Warden Lucio at the door of the nearest building, waving the last two children and Ramirez through the door while she watched out behind. I guided Sue up to the building and had her settle down to the ground. Come on, but keep the drum going, I told Butters. We slid out of our saddles and ran a couple of steps through the heavy rain to where Lucio stood at the door. Hey there, I said. Sorry I'm late. Lucio stared at me for a moment and then at the dinosaur. Her eyes held a mixture of wonder, anger, gratitude, and revulsion. I... Dio, Dresden. What have you done? It isn't a mortal, I said. It's an animal. You know the laws are there to protect our fellow wizards and mortals. It's... She looked like she might throw up. It's necromancy, she said. It's necessary, I said, and my voice sounded harsh. I hooked a thumb up. You've seen the vortex forming? Yes. What is it? Dark power. Kemmler's people are going to call it down and devour it, along with all the shades they could get to show up. And if they go through with it and turn one of themselves into a god... Lucio's eyes widened as she figured it out and caught on. There will be a vacuum, she said. It will draw in magic to replace it. It will draw in life. Right, I said. And they're going to be over there, directly under the vortex, I said. But if anyone tries to go in without a field of necromantic energy around them, the vortex will suck them dry before they get there. We need to get in there to stop them. That's why I borrowed Tiny here. So don't give me any crap about the laws of magic, or at least wait for later, because there are too many lives at stake. Anger flickered over her face, and she opened her mouth. Then she frowned and closed it again. Where did you get this information? Kemmler's book, I said. You found it? I grimaced. Briefly, Gravain jumped me and took it. Butters looked back and forth between us, marching in place to make the polka suit's drumbeat. 
Lucio blinked at him, took a deep breath, then said, And who is this? The drummer I needed to pull this off, I told her. And a good friend. He saved my life tonight. Butters, this is Ms. Lucio. Captain, this is Butters. Lucio gave Butters a courtly little bow, and he ducked his head sheepishly in reply. Where'd you find those kids? I asked. She grimaced. This building is an apartment complex. We got here just as the first of the undead arose. One of the parents was screaming about the children being at some sort of Halloween party in a building on campus. We were too late to save the women taking care of them, but at least we got the children out. I chewed on my lip, studying the warden. You had evil wizards to gun down, and you stopped to get some kids out of the line of fire? I figured wardens would have melted the bad guys first, tried to get the civilians clear later. She lifted her chin and regarded me with an arched brow. Is that how you think of us? Yes, I said. She frowned and looked down at the hilt of her sword. Dresden, the wardens are not, as a rule, concerned with compassion or empathy, but they were children. I am not proud of my every act as a warden, but I would sooner hurl myself to the demons than leave a child to die. I frowned at her. You would, I said thoughtfully. Wouldn't you? She smiled a little, her iron-gray hair plastered to her head with the rain, and it made many wrinkles at the corners of her eyes. Not all of us share Morgan's attitudes, but even he would never have turned aside from children in danger. He is an enormous ass at times, but a brilliant soldier, and beneath all his flaws, a decent man. The door to the building slammed open and Morgan came through, sword gripped in both hands. I told you, he said viciously to Lucio. I told you he would turn on us. This latest violation of the laws only proves what I've said all along. His voice trailed off slowly as he caught me from the corner of his eye and turned to see me standing there, and Sue crouched a couple of yards behind me. Yeah, I told Lucio, and my voice was the only dry thing about me. I see what you mean. Morgan, he found the book, she looked at me. Tell him. I relayed everything I had learned to Morgan. He glowered at me with enormous suspicion, but by the time I got to the part where thousands of people would die if we failed to stop the spell, his face became drawn with anxiety and then hardened with determination. He listened without interrupting. We need to get to the center of the spell, I finished. Attack them just as they try to draw it down. It's impossible, Morgan said. I got close enough to see them when we went in for the children. They're in a little patch of grass and picnic tables between the buildings. There are several hundred animated corpses in our way. As it happens, I said, jerking my head at Sue, I brought an animated corpse countermeasure along with me tonight. I'll get us through. Morgan stared at me for a second and then nodded, the idea clearly gathering momentum in his thoughts. Yes, then. We try to hit them as they complete the spell. That gives them the most time to backstab one another, and if we disrupt the working that powerful, the backlash will probably kill them. Agreed, Lucio said. How's Yoshimo? Ramirez says her thigh is broken, Morgan growled. She's not in danger, but she won't be doing any more fighting tonight. Damn it, Lucio said. I should have caught that one before it went through. No, Captain, Morgan said implacably. She should never have tried her sword on it. She was an unremarkable fencer at best. 
gosh, you're a sweetheart, Morgan, I said. He glared at me, and the sword quivered in his hands. Lucio brought her hand down between us in a gesture of absolute authority. Gentlemen, she said quietly, later. We've no time. Morgan took a deep breath in and then nodded. I folded my arms and kept up my glower, but I hadn't been the one near violence. Point Dresden. I've done for Gravain's drummer, and Sue just ate Corpse Taker's sidekick, I said. That leaves us with those two and Cal plus Cal's assistant. Four of them and five of us, Morgan said. Lucio grimaced. It could be worse, she admitted. But only you and I have any experience with this kind of fight, she glanced at me. No offense, Dresden, but you are young, and you haven't seen this kind of duel very often. But even you have more experience than Ramirez or Kowalski. None taken, I said, beginning to shiver in the rain. I'd rather be home in bed. Morgan, please get the other wardens and fill them in. Then put Yoshimo where she can see the front door and defend the building. If things don't go well, we may need somewhere to fall back. If things don't go well, I said, we really won't have to worry about that. Morgan shook his head at me. I'll be right back. I stood there for a moment. A mangled zombie wandered up the sidewalk. I walked back to Sue and touched her flank in her thoughts, and she flicked her tail, batting the thing away into the darkness. Then I walked back over to Lucio. Incredible, she said quietly, looking at Sue. Dresden, this... this kind of magic is an abomination. Perhaps a necessary one this night, but hideous all the same. And yet, look at it. It's amazing. Pretty good for zombie crushing, too, I said. Indeed. She looked up at the sky again. How will we know when they begin drawing down the power? I started to say, your guess is as good as mine, but I didn't get any of it out of my mouth before the clouds rolled and stirred and suddenly began to spin in a single enormous spiral. More lightning showed me the dim form of what looked like a thin, almost spidery tornado that dropped from the cloud and began to descend to the ground. I stiffened and nodded at it. There you go, I said. They're starting now. Very well, Lucio said. Then we must move at once. I want you to... Lucio didn't get to tell me what she wanted me to do, because the earth suddenly boiled with writhing masses of pale green light that came surging up out of the ground. They took on form as they came, first vaguely human, then, over the next instants, resolving into clearer images of what looked like Amaran tribesmen. As they came, their mouths opened in shrieks and wails of excitement and rage, and ghostly weapons appeared in their hands, spears and hatchets, clubs and bows. One of them turned and threw a translucent, shimmering spear at my chest. I barely had time to think, but my left arm swept up. My charred shield bracelet exploded into a cloud of blue and white sparks, and the hurled spear shattered into angry green flames against my shield. I heard a short cry beside me and ducked, narrowly avoiding a swing from a spectral hatchet whose wielder floated over me. I threw myself forward and rolled, coming up with my shield ready and my will gathering in my staff, making the sigils carved along its length glow with sullen fire. A specter swung a club at Lucio, and she rolled with the blow, but even so took a hit to her jaw and mouth that staggered her. She recovered her balance, ducked to avoid a second swing, and once more drew the silver sword of a warden from her hip. Again the blade sang with that buzzing power I'd sensed before, and Lucio made a clean lunge at the specter that thrust the blade through its heart. 
The specter arched as if in agony and simply exploded into flashes of sickly light and falling globs of ectoplasm. Lucio swept her sword back and spun on a heel to face two more of the quasi-solid spirits. I blocked a second blow of the hatchet on my shield, looking wildly around for butters. I spotted the little guy five yards away, on his hands and knees on the crosswalk, his legs still kicking wildly to keep the drum going. Three of the deadly specters were closing in on him with wails of madness and rage. Butters! I shouted and rose to go to him, but two more specters dove at me and forced me to crouch behind my shield. I could only watch what happened as the three undead swarmed Butters and attacked him. Butters spun around wildly, his eyes down, evidently not even aware that they were coming. One of them swung a great two-handed club back as Butters put one hand to his mouth and then slammed it back down on the ground again. The specter's weapon swept down with a clean and lethal grace, heading directly for the back of Butters' head, and suddenly shattered against the curving curtain of an empowered circle. Butters looked up at the specters as they flailed uselessly against the circle. He had the piece of chalk I'd given him in one hand, and he'd torn the little cut he'd used before open once more with his teeth. He stood up, the drum still thumping, and gave me a shaky thumbs up. Good butters, I shouted at him. Stay in there. He nodded, his face pale, and marched in place to keep the drum going. I swung my staff at a specter and hit it, and the ghostly warrior reacted as if struck by a heavy brick. It was a curious kind of impact, not the thudding thump of hitting something solid, but some kind of impact nonetheless. I knew from the way that the specters had come up through the earth that they were only partially material. A material impact would have little enough effect on them, and the strength of my arm behind the swing meant nothing to them. But the power of my will that I had called up and held ready in my staff, that was something else. That energy was what the specter reacted to, and I pressed my advantage, whipping my staff through the specter's head and belly on two separate swings, driving the apparition away with howls of pain. In the time it took me to do that, Lucio had simply dispatched three more of the specters with the humming power of her warden's blade. She looked at me, her eyes wide, and lifted a pointing finger. She snarled a word, and another searing thread of flame shot over my shoulder about eight inches from my right ear. There was a howl, and I turned my head to see another specter that had been charging my back fall, consumed in scarlet flame. I felt a fierce grin on my face, and I turned around to nod my thanks to Lucio, and saw the corpse-taker come out from under a veil of magic and swing her drawn tulwar at Lucio's back. Captain! I shouted. Lucio's sword arm swept up and around, blade parallel to her spine, as she drew it around her shoulders in a circle and caught corpse-taker's attack without even turning to face it. Lucio sprang forward like a cat and spun in place only to have Corpse-Taker press her attack and drive the captain of the wardens back on her heels. Corpse-Taker's young face was set in a wide and manic smile, cheeks dimpled, her curly hair flying wildly around her head as she charged. She wore a small skin drum of some kind on a rig at her hip, and she beat a swift tattoo on it with one hand while fighting with the other. A fresh cloud of specters swirled up in support of her, and a flying arrow drew a line of scarlet on Lucio's cheek. I roared out a challenge, brandishing my staff, and bellowed, Forzori! A lance of unseen force lashed out at Corpse Taker, but the necromancer leapt back and away from it. 
She cried out words in an unknown tongue, and half a dozen specters darted toward me. I brought up my shield, but was soon hard-pressed to even hold it up against repeated attacks from the specters, and they kept trying to circle around me. If I'd stood my ground, they would have killed me, and as much as I wanted to help Lucio, I had no choice but to take one step back after another until I found my shoulders pressed against Sue's enormous flank. But my attack on the corpse-taker had bought Lucio what she needed to make a fight of things, time to recover from the surprise attack. She cut down two more specters with needles of flame, contemptuously slapped aside another cut from Corpse-Taker's tulwar, and then took the battle to the necromancer, gray cloak flying in the storm's wind, pressing her hard with a silver rapier and driving Corpse-Taker back one step after another. I dropped the staff and slapped my bare hand on Sue's hide. Though the dinosaur looked like a living beast, that was only appearance. Her own flesh was made of the same ectoplasm that the specters were. I had just poured enough energy into it to make it seem more solid. She was of the same stuff as the specters, and that meant that she could hurt them. The Tyrannosaur stirred and then snapped her jaws to one side, closing on a specter and tearing it into fading light and globs of goo. She heaved herself to her feet, eyes sweeping around the ground in front of her for the next specter. It lifted a bow and loosed a glowing green arrow that sunk into the muscle of her neck, and she bellowed in pain, but the arrow was no more than a bee's sting. One clawed foot came up and down and destroyed a second specter. The others let out wails and shouts of fear and anger and spread out to attack Sue, while the dinosaur lashed her tail around and looked for the next victim. I saw Lucio drive corpse-taker forward and around the corner of the building out of sight. I'd given the specters a bigger problem to worry about, and I went after Lucio. Harry! Butters shouted, pointing. I looked up at the building. I heard children screaming inside. Someone, Ramirez, I thought, screamed, Get down! Get down! There were flashes of luminous green light swirling here and there in the windows. I heard Morgan shout a challenge, and I heard a raucous booming sound from within. The wardens there were under attack as well. Stay put! I told him, and ran after Lucio. It was too thick with shadow to see easily around the side of the building, but in a flash of lightning, I saw Lucio make another lunge, her technique gorgeous, back legs stretched forward, spine straight, the sword extended and taking the full weight of her body behind its vicious tip. Lucio knew what she was doing. She dipped the tip of her blade under corpse-taker's tulwar, and the point sank into the necromancer just under the floating ribs. Corpse-taker's mad smile never faltered. The lightning died away, and I heard a short, gasping cry. I took my mother's pentacle in hand and lifted it, willing light from it. Silver-blue light filled the little space between buildings. I saw Lucio plant her feet, twist the blade viciously, and whip it back out again. Corpse-taker fell to her knees. She stared down at her chest and then pressed her hands tightly to the wound. She looked up again, staring at Lucio and then at me. Her eyes clouded over with confusion, and she slowly toppled to her side on the grass. Excellent, said Lucio, turning around. She flicked blood from the silver blade and regarded it for a moment, then strode with purposeful steps for the front of the building again. Come, wizard. We have no time to waste. You're going to leave her there? She's finished, Lucio said harshly. Come. Are you all right? I said. She shot a hard look at me. Perfectly. 
Crevain and Carl remain. We must find them and kill them. Her eyes flicked to the spiraling clouds overhead. And quickly. We have only moments. Hurry, fool. I stood there for a second, staring at Lucio's back. I lifted the pentacle and looked at Corpse Taker's body, lying on its side in the rain. She twitched a little, her dark eyes wide and staring blindly, her face pale. And my stomach twisted in sudden fear. I stepped around the corner of the building with my forty-four in my hand, aimed it at the back of Lucio's head, drew back the hammer, and shouted, my voice harsh and hard, Corpse Taker! Lucio's steps faltered. Her head snapped around to look at me, and in her eyes I saw a brutal cruelty that could never have belonged to the captain of the wardens. I felt the first tug of a soul gaze, but I made my decision in the moment that my voice caused her steps to falter. She opened her mouth, and I saw the corpse-taker's madness twist Lucio's eyes, felt the sudden dark tension as she began to gather power. She never got it. In that single second of uncertainty, Corpse Taker had been relying upon her disguise to defend her, and had her mind bent upon planning her next step, not preparing her death curse. The bullet from my forty-four hit her just over her right cheekbone. Her head snapped back and then forward. It might have been Lucio's body, but it was the Corpse Taker's expression of shock and surprise as the stolen body fell to the ground in a loose tangle of dead limbs. I heard a low, strangled sound. I looked up to see Morgan standing in the building's doorway, sword in hand. He stared at Lucio's corpse and rasped, Captain? I stared at him for a second and then fumbled for words. Morgan, th this isn't what it looks like. Morgan's dark eyes rose to focus on me and his face twisted with rage. You... His voice was deadly quiet. A sword rose to a guard, and he stalked out into the rain, and his voice rose to a wrathful roar as the ground, the freaking ground, began to literally shake. Murderer! Traitor! Oh, shit. Chapter 40 Morgan lashed his fist out at me, shouting something that sounded vaguely Greek, and the very rocks of the earth rippled up in a wave that flew toward me with incredible speed. I had never fought against earth magic in earnest before, but I knew enough about it to not want to be in the way when it got to me. The gun went back in my pocket, and I took my staff in hand and ran for the nearest tree. I thrust the staff back at the earth as I ran, gathered in my will, and shouted, Forzari! Unseen force lashed out at the ground behind me and flung me up at an angle. I hit the branches of the tree maybe ten feet up and scrambled wildly to grab one. I did it, and though it shook the tree like a blow from a giant axe, the wave of power went by under me without, oh, sucking me under the ground or crushing me or anything like that. I can't imagine that whatever Morgan had in mind was less than horribly violent. Morgan bellowed in rage and charged toward me, sword in hand. I jerked my legs up, and he missed my ankles, if not by much. He snarled in rage, whirled with the silver sword of the wardens, abruptly emitting a low howling sound, and struck at the trunk of the tree in a motion of focus and power that reminded me of way too many Kurosawa movies. There was a flash of light as the blade cut all the way through the tree's trunk, the heat of all that force setting both sides of the tree on fire as the tree started to fall. 
I dropped clear and rolled as the tree fell out toward the street, and Morgan darted to one side, trying to get around the fallen tree to kill me. Morgan! I shouted. For God's sake, man, that wasn't Lucio! Lies! Morgan snarled. He abandoned chasing me around the tree in favor of simply hacking his way through it, and the sword in his hands howled again and again as he struck, cutting trunk and branches like bits of straw. It was the corpse taker, I shouted. The body thief. She let Lucio gut her and then switched places with her. His answer was an almost incoherent snarl. He came the last several feet faster than I could have believed and lashed at me with a sword. I brought my shield up and deflected the blow, but the impact of it slammed painfully against the whole left side of my body. There was more than simply physics behind that blade. I backpedaled out into the street, where several more zombies saw me and headed my way. Specters darted or looped lazily about now, with no sense of purpose in them at all, now that their drum was silent and the corpse-taker was dead. Morgan! I screamed. Lucio might still be alive! But not if she doesn't get help, and soon we can't do this! More lies! He murmured something. The blade in his hands hummed as Lucio's had, and he flicked it lightly out against my shield. There was a shrieking scream, in my head rather than in my ears. I don't know how to describe it, except to say that bad audio feedback is musical and soothing by comparison. The power in the silver sword hit my defensive shield and simply undid it unraveled it, so that all the energy in it went flying apart in all directions, while a hot, tingling pain flashed through my left arm where I wore the bracelet. Morgan attacked in earnest after that little flick of the blade had destroyed my defense, but his first swing was an overhand one aimed at my temple. I knocked the blade aside with a sweep of my staff and saw a flash of surprise cross his face at the speed of the parry. He recovered his balance, but I simply ran from him, taking that vital second to get moving again. Morgan cursed and followed me, but I can move, especially for a man my size, and Morgan wasn't exactly a spring chicken. I gained ten or twelve feet on him before my legs suddenly became unsteady and I faltered and nearly fell. I wanted to scream in frustration, though I didn't feel how much pain my body was in. It was battered and weak. There was no way I could simply outrun him, but I made it back over to where my dinosaur stood, restlessly idle after driving away the specters. I got close enough to touch her and slapped at her flank, desperately willing my intentions to her tiny brain. Doubtless savvy necromancers had ways of conveying their orders over a distance, but I was new at this, and I had no intentions of refining my technique any time soon. Sue spun around as Morgan charged, leaned down low, and opened her vast jaws in a bellow of challenge. Say what you will about Morgan, the man was no coward. But the bellow of an angry tyrannosaur is enough to give any mammal a moment or two of doubt. He slid to a halt on his heels, still grasping the sword in his left hand, and stared at Sue and then at me. He took a deep breath and then reached out his right hand where there was a low, yawning, humming sound that shook the air around his fingers. No, he said quietly. Not even this creature will keep you from justice this time, Dresden. Even if I have to die doing it. I stared at Morgan, the same old frustration and fear suddenly yielding to a realization. I had always assumed that Morgan's irrational hatred was something personal, reserved for me and me alone. 
I had assumed that for whatever reason, Morgan's persecution was the result of the political and philosophical enmity of certain members of the White Council, that he was nothing but a pawn for someone higher up in the game. But politicians don't make good kamikazes. That kind of dedication is reserved for zealots of principle and lunatics. For the first time, I considered the notion that perhaps Morgan's hate was not directed at me personally, but at those that he truly believed to be violators of the laws of magic, murderers and traitors. I knew people who would face death, even embrace it, rather than surrender their principles. Karen Murphy was one of them, and I was friends with most of the rest. At the end of the day, Morgan was a cop. He worked for a different body of law, of course, and under a different set of guidelines, but his duties were the same. Pursue, combat, and apprehend those who violated the laws put in place to protect people from harm. He'd spent more than a century as a policeman, dealing with some of the more nightmarish things on the planet. Thinking of him in that light suddenly gave me a different understanding of Morgan's character. I'd seen burned-out cops before. They'd labored long and hard in the face of danger and uncertainty to uphold the law and protect the victims of crimes, only to see both the law and the victims it should have protected broken, beaten, and abused again and again. It mostly happened to the cops who genuinely cared, who believed in what they were doing, who passionately wanted to make a difference in the world. Somewhere along the way, their passion had become bottled anger. The anger had fermented into bitter hatred, then the hatred had fed upon itself, gnawing away at them over years, even decades, until only a shell of cold iron and colder hate remained. I didn't feel contempt for burned-out cops. I didn't feel anger toward them. All I ever felt was sadness and empathy for their pain. They'd seen too much in their daily battle against criminals. Ten or twenty or thirty years of witnessing the most monstrous aspects of humanity had slowly turned them into walking casualties of war. And Morgan had been on his beat for more than a century. Morgan didn't hate me. He hated the bad guys. He hated the wizards who abused the power he had dedicated his life to using to protect others. When he looked at me, he didn't see Harry Dresden. He could only see the atrocities and tragedies that had burned themselves into his mind and heart. I understood him. It didn't make me like him, but I could understand the pain that drove him to persecute me. Of course, my sensitivity and empathy were completely irrelevant because they wouldn't do a damn thing to stop him. If he charged me, I wouldn't have any options. Morgan, I rasped, please don't. We can't let Corpse Taker divide us like this. Can't you see that? That was her intention when she took Lucio. Traitor, he snarled. Liar. I ground my teeth in frustration. My God, man, thousands of people are about to die. His mouth twisted, baring his teeth all the way to the gums. And you will be the first. If he charged me again, I wouldn't have any choice but to fight. And he was at least as strong as me, and far more experienced, not to mention the enchantment-breaking silver sword in his hand. If I didn't kill him fast, he would kill me. It was as simple as that. And even if I did kill him, he would spend his death curse on me, and it wouldn't be like the feeble thing Cassius had thrown. Morgan would obliterate me. I couldn't run. I couldn't survive fighting him, regardless of whether or not I beat him. The best I could hope for would be to take him with me, 
If I died, Sue would go wild, reverting to the instincts of her ancient spirit. She would hunt. People would die. But if Morgan died, it would leave only Kowalski and Ramirez to stop Cowl and Gravain. Even if they could manage to pull off some kind of necromancy to shield them from the vortex as they went in, they would never be able to beat the necromancers within. They would certainly die. And not long after that, the Dark Hallow would annihilate thousands of innocent lives. With Morgan leading them, they might have a chance. Not a good one, but at least there was a chance. Which meant that if I wanted to stop the Dark Hallow and save all those lives, I had only one choice. I leaned my suddenly trembling hand against Sue's leg, and she sank back into a passive crouch. Morgan let out a bellow of defiance and determination and rushed me. I lowered my shield. My heart pounded with a fear so strong that I nearly threw up. The lightning gleamed on the silver blade of his sword. I dropped my staff to the ground and faced him, arms at my sides, my hands clenched into terrified fists. I readied my will, my own death curse, picturing Gravain in my thoughts. At least I could give the wardens a better chance for victory if I could kill or cripple one of the bastards on my way out. Time stretched out into an endless moment. I watched Morgan's sword sweep up to the vertical, the blade a gorgeous silver that reflected the lightning ripping apart the spinning vortex behind me. Harry! Butters screamed, his voice horrified, the drum pounding frantically. As Morgan struck, I took the coward's way out and closed my eyes. I knew that it was inevitable that one day I would die, but I didn't want to watch it coming. Chapter 41 A gunshot rang out. Morgan jerked at the hips, suddenly thrown off balance. He spun gracelessly and fell to the ground. I stared at him in shock. Morgan let out a snarl, fixed his eyes on me, and lifted his right hand, deep and terrifying power gathering in it. Morgan! snapped a woman's voice. That voice rang with authority and confidence, with command. The speaker damn well knew that when she gave an order, that it would be obeyed, and imbued the command with a power that had nothing to do with magic. Stand down! Morgan froze for an instant and glanced over his shoulder. Ramirez stood twenty feet away, his pistol smoking in his hand. The other arm was supporting the weight of the girl I had known as the corpse taker. The girl's face was as pale as death, and she could not possibly have been standing on her own, but though her features were exactly the same as when Corpse Taker had been in the body, she did not look like the same person. Her eyes were narrowed and hard, and her expression was filled with a stern, almost regal confidence. You heard me, the girl snapped. Stand down. Who are you? Morgan asked. Morgan, Ramirez said. Dresden was telling the truth. This is Captain Lucio. No. Morgan said, shaking his head, but his voice lacked his usual absolute conviction. No, it's a lie. It's no lie, Ramirez said. I solgazed her. It's the captain. Morgan's lips worked soundlessly, but he didn't release the strike he held ready in his hand. Morgan, the girl said, quietly this time. It's all right. Stand down. You aren't the captain, Morgan mumbled. You can't be. It's a trick. 
The girl, Lucio, abruptly put on a lopsided smile. Donald, she said. Dear idiot, I'm the one who trained you. I am fairly certain that you do not know as much as I do about who I am. Lucio lifted her arm and showed Morgan the silver rapier she'd carried before. She took it in her hand and whipped it in a circle, eliciting a steady, humming power as I'd felt before. There. Could another so employ my own blade? Morgan stared at her for a moment. Then his hand dropped, suddenly limp, the power he'd held draining away. My heart started beating again, and I leaned heavily against Sue's flank. Ramirez holstered his gun and helped the new Lucio over to Morgan's side, then lowered her gently to the ground beside him. You're hurt, Morgan said. His own face had gone white with pain. How bad is it? Lucio tried a small smile. I'm afraid I aimed too well. The wound has done for me. It may take some time, that's all. My God, Morgan said. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I saw Dresden shoot you, and while you were bleeding, needed help. Lucio raised a weak hand. No time, she said gently. Ramirez had bent over Morgan, meanwhile, and was examining the gunshot wound. The bullet had caught Morgan in the back of one leg, and it looked messy. Damn it, Ramirez said. It hit his knee. It's shattered. He placed his fingers lightly over Morgan's knee, and the older warden abruptly twisted in pain, his face gone bloodless. He can't walk. Lucio nodded. Then it's up to you. She looked over at me. And you, Warden Dresden. What about Kowalski? I said. Ramirez paled. He glanced back at the apartment building and shook his head. He was sitting on the floor when the specters rose out of it. He never had a chance. No time, Lucio said weakly. You must go. Butters came marching over to us, drum still beating, his face pale. Okay, he said. I'm ready. Let's do it. Not you, Butters, I said. Sue just needs to be able to hear the drum. She'll hear it over there just as well as if you were on her back. I want you to stay here. But I can't afford to spare effort to protect you, I told him and I don't want to leave the wounded here alone. Just keep the drum beating. But I want to go with you. I want to help. I'm not afraid to... He swallowed, face pale. Die fighting beside you. Look at it this way, I said. If we blow it, you get to die anyhow. Butters stared at me for a second and then said, Gee, now I feel better. I believe that there's a cloud for every silver lining, I said. Come on, Ramirez. Ramirez's grin returned. Everyone else who lets me ride on their dinosaur calls me Carlos. I climbed back up into the first saddle and Ramirez settled into the second. God be with you, Harry, Butters said, marching in place on the ground, his face worried. Given whom I had chosen as my ally, I sort of doubted that if God went with me, it would be to assist me. I'll take whatever help I can get, I said aloud, and laid my hand on Sue's hide. She lurched up from her crouch, and I turned her toward the sight of the vortex. You're hurt, Ramirez said. He kept his voice pitched very low. I can't feel it, I said. I'll worry about the rest if there's a later. You've got great timing, by the way. Thank you. De nada, he said. I was right behind Morgan. I heard you trying to talk to him about Lucio. You believed me?
I started Sue forward. It would take her several steps to pick up speed. Ramirez sighed. I've heard a lot about you. Watched you at the council meeting. My gut says you're okay. It was worth checking out. And you soul-gazed her. That was some fast thinking and good shooting. I'm brilliant as well as skilled, he said modestly. It's a great burden, all of that on top of my angelic good looks, but I try to soldier on as best I can. I let out a short, rough laugh. I see. I hope I won't embarrass you then. Did I not mention my nearly godlike sense of tolerance and forgiveness? Sue gathered speed, and I turned her down the street. Hey, he said, the bad guys are back that way. I know, I said, but they're expecting an attack from that direction. I'm going to circle the block, try to come in behind them. Is there time? My baby can move, I told him. Sue broke into her run, and the ride smoothed out. Ramirez let out a whoop of pure enjoyment. Now this is cool, he said. I can't even imagine how complicated this must have been. Wasn't complicated, I told him. Oh, so summoning up dinosaurs is actually very easy, is it? I snorted. Any other night, any other place. I don't think I could have done it. But it wasn't complicated either. Lifting up an engine block isn't complicated. It's just a lot of work. Ramirez was silent for a moment. I'm impressed, he said. I didn't know Ramirez very well, but my sense of him told me that those were words he was not in the habit of uttering. When you do something stupid and die, it's pathetic, I said. When you do something stupid and survive it, then you get to call it impressive or heroic. He let out a rueful chuckle. What we're doing right now, he said, his voice softened and lost its edge of brash arrogance. It's pathetic, isn't it? Probably, I said. On the other hand, he said, recovering, if we survive it, we're heroes. Medals, girls, endorsements, cars. Maybe they put us on a cereal box. Seems the least they could do, I said. So, we've got two of them left to take down. Who do we hit first? Gravain, I said. If he's holding a bunch of zombies as guard dogs, he isn't going to have a lot of attention to spare for defensive spells or for throwing anything else at us. We hit him fast. Hopefully put him down before he can try anything. He handled a chain like he knew how to use it when I saw him fight Corpse Taker. Ugh, Ramirez said. Nasty. Anyone who knows their way around a Kusari is a tough customer. Yeah, so we shoot him. Damn right we shoot him, Ramirez said. This is why so many of the younger members of the council like the way you do things, Dresden. I blinked. They do? Ah, oh, hell yes, Ramirez said. A lot of them, like me, were apprentices when you were first tried after Justin DeMorne's death. A lot of them are still apprentices, but there are people who think highly of what you've done. Like you? I would have done a lot of those things, he said, only with a lot more style than you. I snorted. Second one will hit calls himself Cow. He's good. I've never seen a wizard stronger than he is, and that includes Ebenezer McCoy. A lot of guys who hit hard have a glass jaw. Bet he's all offense. I shook my head. No, he's just as good at protecting himself. I flipped a car over on top of him, and it barely slowed him down. Ramirez frowned and nodded. How do we take him down, then? I shook my head. Haven't thought of anything good. Hit him with everything and hope something gets through. And if that wasn't enough, he's got an apprentice with him, called Kumori, who seems personally loyal. She's probably strong enough to be on the council herself. Damn, Ramirez said quietly. She pretty?
She keeps her face covered, I said. No idea. If she was pretty, I'd just turn on the Ramirez charm and have her eaten out of my hand, he said. But I can't take chances with that kind of power if I'm not sure she's pretty. Used recklessly, it could endanger innocent bystanders or land me in bed with an ugly girl. Can't have that, I said, turning Sue around another corner. I checked the vortex. The slender, spinning pseudo-tornado was more than halfway to the ground. All right, then, Ramirez said. Once we're past Gravain, I'll take on the apprentice. You go for Cowell. I glanced back at him with an arched eyebrow. If we ignore Kumari, she'll be free to take us both out. One of us has to counter her. You're stronger than me, he said, his tone matter-of-fact. Don't get me wrong. I'm so damn good that I make it look easy, but I'm not stupid. You have the best shot at taking Cowell down. If I can drop the apprentice, I'll help. Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan, I said. I just wish it sounded like a winning plan. You got a better idea? Ramirez asked me cheerfully. No, I said, and I turned Sue down the street that would hopefully let us attack the necromancers from the rear. Well then, he said, his smile ferocious, shut up and dance. Chapter 42 The campus of the college consisted of only a few buildings. A couple of dorms, a couple of buildings with classrooms, the Mitchell Museum, and an administrative office. The area between them was a nicely kept lawn, too small to look like a park, but larger than you'd want to mow every week. At the center of the area, directly in front of the museum, picnic tables had been overturned onto their sides around a large circle, open to the skies above. I slowed Sue's steps for a moment to try to get some kind of idea of what we had to contend with. Standing in silent ranks around that circle were Gravain's style of undead. Very solid, very physical, though there were relatively few of them in the half-rotted or desiccated condition of the corpses that had attacked my place. These undead looked like they might still have been saved by a snappy EMT. They all looked like Native American tribesmen, just as corpse-takers' specters had, though the styles of clothing and weaponry were slightly different. One other thing was different, too. These undead radiated a kind of hideous, ephemeral cold, and their skin almost seemed to glow with its own pale, horrible light. I could sense the raw power that lay within them, even from a hundred yards away. These undead were different from those that had attacked the wardens, as different as an old pickup truck was from a modern battle tank. These zombies would not be so easily destroyed as those others, and were likely to be far stronger, far faster. They stood in ranks around the inner circle, facing outward, but they ranked thicker between the circle and the last location of the wardens than on the side nearest us. I had managed to outflank the thinking of whoever had those undead in position, and the thought cheered me somewhat. Spirits and specters and formless masses of luminescent light darted and flowed around the circle like strands of kelp and bits of algae caught in a whirlpool. They were all the same unpleasant colors as the lightning in the storm, and even as I watched, their numbers visibly grew. Sue paced a restless step forward, and I felt a horrible sensation of cold on the skin of my face and forehead, as if the hovering vortex above was casting out some kind of perverted inversion of sunlight. I crouched a little lower on Sue's back, and the feeling faded. Lightning flashes from different directions cast a web of shadows over the whole place, 
trees and buildings collaborating with the storm to conceal much of the open circle, continually clothed in shifting blocks and threads of darkness. I could see that there was someone within the circle of picnic tables, but not who, and I couldn't even be sure of how many. That, I said in a low voice, is a lot of badass zombies. And ghosts, Ramirez said, and ghosts. Look at it this way, he said. With that many of them, how can we miss? Yeah, I said. Cool. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to go find myself a hole and crawl into it. But instead, I put my hand on Sue's neck, drew her attention to the zombies, and willed her forward into battle. Sue leapt forward and hit the nearest rank of zombies before any of them had the chance to notice her. She tore one apart with her vast jaws, smashed several others flat, crushed some with her flailing tail, and generally went to town. After her devastating initial charge, I heard a frantic man's voice shout from within the circle, and the zombies turned to attack. The zombies whipped out bows and spears and clubs, or else tore at Sue with their bare hands. It wasn't pretty. Arrows streaked through the air with unnatural speed, and when they struck the Tyrannosaur's hide, they sounded almost like gunshots. One zombie rammed a spear cleanly through the massive muscle of Sue's right thigh. A swinging club shattered several of her teeth, and even as I watched, an unarmed zombie leapt up onto her flank, got a hold of the heavy extension cord that held the saddles in place, then drove his fist into her flesh up to the elbow and started raking out gobbets of tissue by the handful. I brought up the sparkling blue cloud of my shield bracelet in time to intercept an arrow, and others smashed against it with the force of bullets, even as I held it in place. Without being told, I felt Ramirez turn to our right, his own left hand extended, and a concave disk of green light expanded, web-like from his outstretched fingertips, covering that flank from still more of them. But as vicious and as strong and as swift and deadly as the zombies were, they couldn't hold a candle to Sue. The injuries that might have terrified a living beast only infuriated her, and as that rage swelled, her own gray and black hide gained a silvery sheen of power. She roared so loudly that my chest and belly shook, and my ears screamed with pain. She caught one zombie in her jaws and flung it away. It sailed up over the nearest five-story building and out of sight in the darkness and rain. When she stomped down with her foot, she shattered the concrete of a walkway and drove a footprint more than a foot deep into the earth around it. The zombie assault turned into one enormous exercise in suicidal tactics. For whenever one of the undead warriors managed to get through to harm Sue, the Tyrannosaur not only crushed the unlife out of them, but grew that much more angry and powerful and unstoppable. It was like riding a carnivorous earthquake. Look! Ramirez screamed. Look there! I followed his nod and spotted Gravane in a circle in his trench coat and fedora. The necromancer was keeping a steady beat on a drum hung from his belt, and he gripped a staff of gnarled, twisted black wood with the other. He stared at us, his face twisted in hatred, and his eyes glittered with insane malice. I willed Sue to head for the circle, but the Tyrannosaur's will was suddenly no longer pliable or easily led. The blood rage and fury of battle had overloaded what little mind she actually possessed, and now she was nothing but several rampaging tons of killing machine. Hurry! Ramirez shouted. She's not listening, I told him. 
I applied my will even more forcefully, but it was like one man struggling to hold back a bulldozer. I gritted my teeth, desperately trying to figure a way to get Sue where I wanted her, and hit on one idea. Instead of trying to stop her battle rage, I encouraged it, and then I pointed her at the zombies nearer to the circle. Sue responded with bloodlust and glee, swerving to charge toward the zombies nearest the circle, crushing and re-killing them as she went. We have to jump, I shouted. Woohoo! Ramirez cried, his smile blazing white. Sue pursued a dodging zombie to within ten feet of one of the fallen picnic tables, and I let out a scream of fear and excitement as I jumped. It was like falling from a little bit higher than a second-story window, but I managed to land feet first and well enough to absorb most of the shock of impact, though the flash of pain told me that my knees and ankles were going to be sore for days. I rose and lifted my shield at once, in time to intercept the deadly flash of Gravain's whirling chain. Fool, he snarled. You should have joined me when you had the chance. His eyes flicked up and glittered. I followed the line of his gaze. The vortex wasn't more than ten feet from the ground. You can't draw it in if I'm standing right here, I shouted back, retreating and circling to get into the circle of picnic tables. When I did, that horrible, sickly sense of cold faded. This near, the vortex wasn't drawing the life off of me. It was the eye of the metaphysical hurricane. One distraction and the backlash will kill you. It's over. It is not over, he howled, and the chain whipped out again, striking my shield. It is mine, my birthright. I was his favored child. I barely heard a footstep behind me and whirled in time to lift my shield against another zombie with a spear. The weapon shattered against my upraised shield, but even as it did, I felt a burning impact as Gravain's chain wrapped around my wounded leg and jerked hard. My balance went out from under me and I fell to the ground. Gravain's zombie piled onto my back and started biting me. I felt hot, horrible pain on my trapezius muscles left of my neck, even through my cloak and spellwork duster. The zombie let out a vicious cry and let go, then went for the unprotected nape of my neck. I struggled to throw it off of me, to get away, but my battered body was weakened, and it was incredibly strong. Die! Gravain screamed, wild laughter in his unsteady voice. Die! 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 His howls broke off into a single, quiet, choking noise, and the zombie on my back abruptly froze. I struggled out from under it in time to see Gravain standing a few feet away, the chain discarded upon the ground, his hand held to his neck. Blood, black in the night, sprayed from between his fingers. His expression became enraged, and he turned toward me, extending a hand to the zombie near me. The zombie turned once more with purpose but then Gravain's expression became puzzled. His eyes rolled back in his head, and I saw the long, straight, smooth cut that had opened his neck from one side to the other, cutting all the way to his spine. Ramirez stepped into my line of vision, his silver sword in hand and coated with blood. In his other hand, he held his pistol. Without hesitation or hurry, he raised the gun and aimed at Gravain's head from five feet away. Then he executed the stunned necromancer. The body went loose, fell, and lay there in the grass and rain, one leg twitching. 
Around us, the zombies had suddenly lost their vibrant animation, and most of them simply stood passively still, staring at nothing. Tyrannosaur Sue couldn't have cared less and carried on with her killing spree. Ramirez came to me and helped me to my feet. Sorry it took me so long. I had to dodge some bad guys. You got here, I said, panting. He nodded once, grimacing. Couldn't shoot with you that close in this light. Had to do it the old-fashioned way. You were one hell of a good distraction, though. You did fine, I said. I could feel hot wetness trickling down my back. Thank God he was insane. How's that? Ramirez asked. At the end there. You'd opened his throat, but he still thought he could keep going. He tried to hang on to his control of the zombies. It was like he didn't think death counted when it came to him. And that's lucky why? He refused to believe he was dying, I said. No death curse. Ramirez nodded. Yeah, you're right. Lucky us. Then a man's voice said, I don't know if I'd say that, gentlemen. I whirled as one of the passive zombies still standing nearby turned, lifting its spear, and then shimmered into the form of Cowl. He lifted one hand from the folds of his dark cloak, and there was no warning surge of gathering power when a wave of vicious force flickered out from his palm and took Ramirez full in the chest. The young warden hadn't been ready for it. The magical blow lifted him from his feet and threw him backward like a rag doll. He hit the ground twenty feet later, limbs already flopping limply, and lay there without moving. No! I shouted, and I whirled on Cowl, hellfire erupting from the runes of my staff. I lifted the staff, snarled, Forzari! and sent a lance of vicious energy at the dark figure. Cowl swiftly crossed his hands at the wrists, forming an X-shape with his arms, aligning defensive energy before him. But he hadn't been quite swift enough, or else he hadn't reckoned on how much energy he had to deal with. The lash of raw, scarlet force hammered him hard on the right side of his body, spinning him around and stealing his balance. He stumbled in a corkscrewing motion and went to the ground. I drew back the staff for another blow, but then someone pressed against my back, fingers tightened in my hair, and I felt the cold, deadly edge of a knife at my throat. Don't move, Kumori's quiet voice said. She was stretched out quite a bit to be pulling my hair and holding the knife, but she'd done it right. There was no way I could try to escape her without her opening an artery. I ground my teeth, my power still ready to lash out again, and debated doing exactly that. Kumori would probably kill me, but it might be worth it to finish Cowl. I looked up at the writhing vortex. Its tip was now barely above the height of my own head. Cowl recovered his feet by slow degrees, shaken more than hurt, and anger radiated from him in nearly palpable waves. Idiot, he said, voice harsh. You have lost. Can you not see? The game is over. Don't do this, I growled. It isn't worth it. You're going to kill thousands of innocent people. Cowl's hood tilted up toward the descending vortex, and he marched over the grass until he stood directly beneath it. Keep him still, he snapped to Kumori. Yes, Lord, Kumori replied. The steel at my throat never wavered. Cowl's hand dipped into a pouch at his side and came out holding Bob the Skull. The lights in the skull's eye sockets burned a cold shade of blue and violet. There, spirit, Cowl said, holding the skull up to see the vortex. Do you see it? 
Of course, said the skull, his voice just as cold and empty. It is precisely as the master described. Proceed. The eye lights swiveled and came to rest on me. Ah, the White Council's black sheep. I recommend that you kill him immediately. No, Kumori said firmly. His death curse could destroy the working. I know that, the skull replied, his voice contemptuous. But if he lives when Cowl draws down the power, he might disrupt it. Kill him now. Silence, spirit, Cowl said in a harsh voice. You are not the master here. Challenge me again at your own peril. The skull's eye sockets burned colder yet, but he said nothing. I swallowed. Bob wasn't Bob anymore. I'd known that he was bound and beholden to whoever possessed the skull he resided within, and that their personality would strongly influence his own, but I never really imagined what that might be like. Bob wasn't precisely a friend to me, but I was used to him. In a way, he was family, the mouthy, annoying, irritable cousin who was always insulting you, but who was definitely a Thanksgiving dinner. I had never considered the possibility that one day he might be something else. Something murderous. The worst part was that Bob had given Cowl good advice. My death curse might well mess up this spell, but on the other hand, Cowl did not seem one to be afraid of death curses. If he gave me the chance to wait until he was actually at the delicate moment of drawing down the power, I wouldn't need anything as strong as a death curse to upset his balance. Of course it would kill me. Kumori's blade would see to that, but I could stop him if I was alive when it went down. Cowl set the skull aside on the grass, then raised his hands above his head and let the sleeves fall back from his long, weathered arms covered in old scars. He began a chant in a low voice, steady and strong. The vortex quivered, and then, almost delicately, it began to descend to Cowl, drifting toward him as lightly and slowly as a drifting feather of down. Power rolled through the heavens, the clouds, the whirling vortex. Spirits and swirling apparitions screamed and wailed their tormented replies. Kumori's hands never weakened or wavered, but I could sense that almost every fiber of her attention was directed toward Cowl. I might have one chance. Bob, I said. Bob! The blue eye lights turned toward me. Think, I said quietly. Think, Bob. You know me. You've worked with me for years. The blue eye lights narrowed. Bob, I said quietly. You've got to remember me. I gave you a name. The skull quivered a little, as if a shudder had run through it, but the eyes continued to burn cold and blue. And then one of them flickered into a shade of its usual orange then immediately back to cold blue. My heart thudded in sudden excitement. Bob the Skull, my Bob, had just winked at me. Cowl continued his chant, and the clouds spun more and more rapidly. The rain abruptly stopped, as swiftly as if someone had turned off a faucet, and the air filled with spirits, ghosts, apparitions, and specters, caught in some vast and unseen whirlpool that dragged them in accelerating circles. The power in the air made it hard to breathe, and the roar of wailing spirits, vast wind, and an earth-deep rumble grew steadily louder. Bob! I shouted into the cacophony. 
You have my permission! Orange light streaked from the eye sockets of the skull and blazed away from the circle of overturned picnic tables. But even so, I saw Bob's glowing body of energy pulled by the whirling currents of magic. He fought against that horrible vortex, and I suddenly realized that without the shelter of the skull or some other kind of physical body, Bob was no different from any of the other spirit beings trapped in that vast maelstrom. If the Dark Hollow was completed, he too would be trapped and devoured. I thought I saw Bob's form sucked up into the clouds of trapped spirits, but there was too much light and noise for me to be sure of anything. Cowl kept on chanting, and I saw his body arch with tension. Over the next minute or so, he actually physically rose above the ground until his boots were three or four inches in the air. His voice had become part of the wild storm, part of the dark energy, and it rolled and boomed and echoed all around us. I began to understand the kind of power we were dealing with. It was power as deep as an ocean and as broad as the sky. It was dark and lethal and horrible and beautiful, and Cowell was about to take it all in. The strength it would give him would not make him a match for the entire White Council. It would put him in a league so far beyond them that their strength would mean virtually nothing. It was power enough to change the world, to reshape it after one's own liking. The tip of the vortex spun down, danced lightly upon Cowell's lips, and then slipped gently between them. Cowell howled out the last repetition of his chant, his mouth opening wide. I ground my teeth. Bob hadn't been able to help me, and I couldn't let Cowell complete the spell, even if it killed me. I drew in my magic for the last spell I would ever throw, a blast to slam into Cowell, disrupt the spell, let that vast energy tear him to bits. Kumori sensed it, and I heard her let out a short cry. The knife burned hot on my throat. And then the dinosaur I'd summoned plunged through the clouds of wild spirits and headed directly for Kumori, her eyes blazing with brilliant orange flames. Tyrannosaur Bob let out a bellow and swiped one enormous talon at Kumori. Cowell's apprentice was tough and competent, but no amount of training or forethought can prepare you for the sight of an angry dinosaur coming to eat your ass. She froze for the briefest second, and I turned, shoving away from her. The knife whipped against my throat, and I felt a hot sting. I wondered if that was what Gravain had felt. There was no more time. I flung myself across the grass, gripped my staff in both hands, and swung it like a baseball bat at Cowell's head. The blow connected, right on what felt like the tip of his upturned jaw, snapping his mouth shut and knocking him to the ground. The vortex abruptly screamed and filled with a furious red light. I choked out a cry and fell down on my right side to the ground, bringing up my shield bracelet and holding it over me in an effort to protect myself from the vast forces now flying free from the botched spell. There was more sound, so loud that no word could accurately describe it, incandescent lightning, screaming faces, and forms of spirits and ghosts and trembling earth beneath me and blackness fell. Chapter 43 When I came to my senses, there was darkness and steady cold rain, and I had sunk up to my neck in a deep well of aching pain. Neither lightning nor thunder played through the skies. 
I lay there for a moment, gathering my wits, and as I did, the lights of the city began to come on, bit by bit, as the power grids went back online. A booted foot pressed into the ground beside my face, and I followed it up, up, and up, until I saw the horned helmet of the Earl King outlined against the brightening Chicago skyline. Wizard, called you forth a mighty hunter tonight, one that has not walked this earth since time gone and forgotten. Yeah, I said, pretty nifty, huh? There was a low, wild laugh from that helmet. Daring, arrogant, it pleases me, he tilted his head. And you are poor game at the moment, because of that, and because you pleased me with your calling of the old hunter, this night you may go free. But beware, mortal, the next time our paths cross, it shall be my very great pleasure to run you down. There was a gust of cold autumn wind, and the Earl King was gone. I looked around blearily. Every tree in the area was gone, torn off about a foot from the earth. The picnic tables had been torn to splinters. The buildings of the college, especially the museum, looked as if they had been ravaged by a tornado that had torn out great chunks and sections of them. My ribs hurt. I looked down and saw that I'd fallen around Bob the Skull and curled my body around him as I had shielded myself. Orange flame flickered to life in the eye sockets. Some show, huh? Bob said. He sounded exhausted. You had to go get the dinosaur, huh? I said. I figured you'd just grab a handy zombie. Why settle for wieners when you can have steak? The skull said brightly. Pretty good idea, Harry, talking to me once Cowell set me on the ground. I didn't want to work for him anyway, but as long as he had the skull... Well, you know how it is. I grunted. Yeah. What happened? The spell backlashed when you slugged Cowl, Bob said. Did just a bit of property damage. I coughed out a little laugh, looking around me. <laughs> yeah. Cowl? Most likely there are little pieces of him still filtering down, Bob said brightly. And his little dog, too. You see them die? I asked. Well, no. Once that backlash came down, it tore apart every enchantment within a hundred miles. Your dinosaur sort of fell apart. I grunted uneasily. Oh, Bob said. I think that warden over there is alive. I blinked. Ramirez? Yeah, Bob said. I figured that you were a warden now and stuff, and that you would probably want me to help out some other warden. So, just before the Big Bang, I had the dinosaur stand over him, soak up the blast. I grunted. Okay, I said. We've got to help him, but one thing first. What's that? Bob asked. I squinted around until I found Gravain's battered corpse. Then I crawled over to it. I fumbled in the trench coat's pockets until I found Kemmler's slender little book. I squinted around me, but there was no one to look as I put it in my pocket. Okay, I said. Come on, watch my back while I help Ramirez. You betcha, boss, Bob said, and his voice was very smug. Hey, you know what? Size really does matter. Ramirez made it out of that evening alive. He had four broken ribs and two dislocated shoulders, but he came through. With Butters' help, I was able to get him, Lucio, and Morgan back to my place. At some point in the evening, Butters had taken off his drum and let Morgan take over the drumming duties, 
while he tried to help Lucio, and as a result, her wound hadn't been quite as fatal as she had thought it would be. They were far too badly hurt to stay at my place, though, and senior council member Injun Joe Listens to Wind himself showed up with half a dozen more stay-at-home wizards who knew something about medicine and healing to move them to a more secure location. I just don't get it, Morgan was telling Listens to Wind. All of these things happening at once, it can't be a coincidence. It wasn't, I heard myself say. Morgan looked at me. The resentment in his eyes hadn't changed, but there was something else there that hadn't been there before. Dare I hope it, some modicum of respect. Think about it, I said. All those heavy vampire attacks, just when Cowell and his buddies most needed the White Council not to be involved. Are you saying that you think Cowell was using the vampires as a tool? Morgan asked. I think they had a deal, I said. The vampires throw their first major offensive at the right time to let Cowell pull off this dark hallow. But what do they get out of it? Morgan asked. I glanced at Listens to Wind and said, The senior counsel. Impossible, Morgan said. By that time they had to know that the senior counsel was back in Edinburgh. The defenses there have been built over thousands of years. It would take... Morgan paused, frowning. I finished the sentence for him. It would take a god to break through them and kill the senior counsel. Morgan stared at me for a long time, but didn't say anything. It wasn't long before they left, pulling out the wounded wardens and leaving. It left me with only about half an hour to meet Mabra's deadline, but since the phones were up again, I left a message at her number and headed for our rendezvous. I turned up in my grave again, standing over the open hole in the ground as Mavra approached me, this time openly and without melodrama. She faced me over my grave and said nothing. I took the book out of my pocket and tossed it to her. She picked it up, regarded it, and then drew an envelope from her jacket and tossed it at my feet. I picked it up and found the negatives of the incriminating pictures of Murphy inside. Mavra turned to leave. I said, wait. She paused. This never happens again, I said quietly. You try to get to me through other mortals again, and I'll kill you. Mavra's rotted lips turned up at one corner. No, you won't, she said in her dusty voice. You don't have that kind of power. I can get it, I said. But you won't, she responded, mockery in her tone. It wouldn't be right. I stared at her for a full ten seconds before I said, in a very quiet voice, I've got a fallen angel tripping all over herself to give me more power. Queen Mab has asked me to take the mantle of winter night twice now. I've read Kemmler's book. I know how the Dark Hollow works, and I know how to turn necromancy against the Black Court. Mavra's filmed eyes flashed with anger. I continued to speak quietly, never raising my voice. So, once again, let me be perfectly clear. If anything happens to Murphy, and I even think you had a hand in it, fuck right and wrong. If you touch her, I'm declaring war on you. Personally. I'm picking up every weapon I can get, and I'm using them to kill you. Horribly. There was utter silence for a moment. Do you understand me? I whispered. She nodded. Say it! I snarled, and my voice came out so harsh and cold that Mavra twitched and took half a step back from me. 
I understand, she rasped. Get out of my town, I told her, and Mavra retreated into the shadows. I stood there over my grave for a minute more, just feeling the pain of my battered body and bitterly considering the inevitability of death. After a moment, I felt another presence near me. I looked up and found the dream image of my father regarding my tombstone speculatively. He died doing the right thing, my father read. Maybe I can change it to, he died alone, I said back. My father smiled a little. Thinking about the death curse, huh? Yeah, die alone. I stared down at my open grave. Maybe it means I'll never be with anybody. Have love, a wife, children. No one who is really close, really there. Maybe, my father said. What do you think? I think that's what he wanted to do to me. I think I'm so tired that I'm hallucinating, and that I hurt, and that I want someone to be holding my hand when it's my time. I don't want to do it alone. Harry, my dad said, and his voice was very gentle. Can I tell you something? Sure. He walked around the grave and put his hand on my shoulder. Son, everyone dies alone. That's what it is. It's a door. It's one person wide. When you go through it, you do it alone. His fingers squeezed me tight. But it doesn't mean you've got to be alone before you go through the door. And believe me, you aren't alone on the other side. I frowned and looked up at my father's image, searching his eyes. Really? He smiled and drew his finger in an X on his chest. Cross my heart. I looked away from him. I did things. I made a deal I shouldn't have made. I crossed the line. I know, he said. It only means what you decide it means. I looked up at him. What? Harry, life isn't simple. There is such a thing as black and white, right and wrong. But when you're in the thick of things, sometimes it's hard for us to tell. You didn't do what you did for your own benefit. You did it so that you could protect others. That doesn't make it right, but it doesn't make you a monster, either. You still have free will. You still get to choose what you will do, and what you will be, and what you will become. He clapped my shoulder and turned to walk away. As long as you believe you are responsible for your choices, you still are. You've got a good heart, son. Listen to it. He vanished into the night, and somewhere in the city, bells started tolling midnight. I stared at my waiting grave, and I suddenly realized that death was really not my biggest worry. He died doing the right thing. God, I hope so. Thomas was waiting back at my apartment when I returned, and Mouse came loping in not long after. Murphy's bike had failed him completely, and by the time he'd reached the college campus, the fur had flown and the whole show was over. I crashed hard and slept for more than a day. When I woke up, I found that my injuries had all been dressed again, and that an IV was hanging beside my bed. Butters showed up every day to check on me, and he had me on antibiotics and had imposed a ferociously healthy diet on me that Thomas made me stick to. I grumbled a lot and slept a lot, and after several days was feeling almost human again. Murphy showed up to chew me out for the wreck she found where her house used to be, 
We'd left the place sort of trashed. But when she saw me in bed, covered in bandages, she stopped in her tracks. What happened? she asked. Oh, things, I said. Chicago was interesting for a couple of days there. I peered at her. She had a cast on her left arm, as if for a broken wrist, and I thought I saw the edge of a bruise on her neck. Hey, I said. What happened? Her cheeks turned pink. Oh, things. Hawaii was interesting for a couple of days there. I'll trade you my story for yours, I said. She got pinker. Um, I'll have to think about it. Then we both looked at each other and laughed, and we left it at that. Chicago reacted to the events of that Halloween predictably. It was all attributed to the worst storm in fifty years, rioting, a minor earth tremor, a large load of bread produced by a local bakery that had been contaminated with ergot, and similar Halloween-fueled hysteria. In the blackout, some reprehensible types had vandalized the museum and relocated Sue's skeleton to a local campus as some kind of bizarre practical joke. There had been dozens of break-ins, robberies, murders, and other crimes during the blackout, but any other reports and wild stories were automatically put down to hysteria and or ergot poisoning. Life went on. Captain Lucio survived her injuries, but not without serious long-term damage that would take a lot of rehabilitation. Between that and the uncertainty of what would happen in her shiny new body, she had been relieved of command as the captain of the wardens until such time as her health and state of mind were judged to be sound and reliable. Morgan took her place. He came to visit me at my place maybe two weeks later and gave me the news. Dresden, he said, I was against inducting you in the first place, but Captain Lucio had the right to ignore my recommendation. She made you a warden, and she made you a regional commander, and there's nothing I can do about that. He took a deep breath. But I don't like you. I think you are dangerous. His mouth twisted. But I am no longer convinced you do these things out of malice. I think you lack discipline and judgment. You have repeatedly demonstrated your willingness to put yourself in harm's way to protect others. As much as it galls me to admit it, I don't think you have any evil intentions. I think your questionable actions are the result of arrogance and poor judgment. In the end, it matters little why you do it. But I cannot in good conscience condemn you for it without giving you some sort of chance to prove me wrong. From Morgan, this was the equivalent of Emperor Constantine converting to Christianity. He was almost admitting that he had been wrong. I reached into my pocket, pulled out a penny, and dropped it to the floor. What was that for? he asked. I'm just making sure gravity is still online, I said. He frowned at me, then shrugged and said, I don't trust you. I'm not committing any wardens to your command, and truth be told, we don't have them to spare in any case. But you may be required to participate in missions from time to time and I will expect you to work with the other regional commander in America. He operates out of Los Angeles. He specifically requested the assignment, and given his role in recent events, he could hardly be gainsaid. Ramirez, I guessed. Morgan nodded, then he reached into his coat and produced an envelope. He handed it to me. What's this? I asked. Your first paycheck, Morgan said, and he didn't look happy to be saying it. Monthly. 
I opened the envelope and blinked. It wasn't a fortune, but a Churisel would be a nice little addition to my earnings in the investigation business. I never thought I would hear myself say this, I said as he started to leave. But thank you, Morgan. His face twisted up into something bitter, and he managed to spit out the words, You're welcome. I think he fled before he started to puke. Several weeks later, Butters showed up at my door with a big box wrapped in Christmas paper. I let him in, and he carried it to the living room and presented me with it. Go ahead, open it. I did. Inside the box was a guitar case, and inside that, an old wooden guitar. Uh, I said, what's this for? Therapy, Butters said. He'd been having me practice squeezing a squishy ball with my left hand. And, just as he'd predicted, I had slowly gained a little more control of it. You're going to learn to play. Uh, my hand doesn't work that well, I said. Not yet, Butters replied. But we'll start slow like everything else, and you can work up to it. Just do the lessons. Look, there's a book in the bottom of the case. I opened the case and found a book entitled Guitar for Total Idiots, while Butters went on about tendons and metacarpal something or other and flexibility. I opened the book, but night had fallen, and the fire was too low to let me read it. I absently waved a hand at the candles on the table beside the couch and muttered, Flick'em Bickus. They puffed to light with a little whoosh of magic. I stopped and blinked, first at the candles and then at my burned hand. What? Butters asked. Nothing, I said, and opened the book to look over it. You know, Butters, for a mortician, you're a pretty good healer. You think so? I glanced at the warm, steady flame of the candles and smiled. Yeah. This is James Marsters. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Deadbeat by Jim Butcher. This program was executive produced by Patty Peruse, produced by David Rapkin, and directed by Bob Walter. Deadbeat is a production of Penguin Audio, a member of Penguin Group USA, Inc., copyright 2010. All rights reserved. The book, Deadbeat, is available wherever rock books are sold. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.